You're listening to Video Monsters, a weekly podcast. Uh, well, uh, mostly weekly. Sometimes more, sometimes less. <sighs> All right, fine. A mostly weekly podcast of Creatures Talking Features with your hosts, Nathan Simmons and Eric Harris. Video Monsters is brought to you by the Chattanooga Film Festival and Central Cinema in Knoxville, Tennessee. Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or online at chatfilmfest.org and centralcinema865.com. And links for each of these can also be found on our pages, so be sure to follow us at Video Monster Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Hello and welcome to episode 313 of Video Monsters, where we take movies seriously, just not ourselves. I'm Nathan. I'm Eric. I'm Dan. And tonight we are continuing on with our Thanksgiving series with um, a, a movie that exists across multiple timelines, question mark, with the same timeline that's looped, all happening simultaneously. There's, there's some questionable stuff going on in this, but uh, tonight we're talking about uh, Cloud Atlas. Yeah, we are. We have so much to talk about in tonight's episode, and I, I'm i excited, y'all. I have been waiting for this episode literally for hours, ever <laughs> since I saw Eric, Egg. and I told him, I was like, dude, tonight's episode yeah, is going to be playing, playing some something. With me. I'm he's like, about, he's like uh, little old George, just kind of like peeking over my shoulder, like, for this? <laughs> You're lusting after the podcast. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> yeah, no, uh, I'm I'm excited, and we have God, we have so much to say. So, Eric, this was yes, your sir. pick for this week. Sure was. Why? Well, uh, it originally was not my pick for this week. Um, anyone who listened to our uh, punchline episode last week will know that in rather dramatic fashion i changed my mind at the last second when you're like all right eric what are we covering next week and i was like well i kind of want to do road to perdition because road to perdition is literally the entire reason i wanted to do Thanksgiving. i wanted an excuse to watch it and talk about it on the podcast but there was this little voice in the back of my head for you know the first <laughs> couple weeks where i was like man cloud atlas would also be a really good option and then at the beginning, like right before we started recording for the Punchline episode, Robert Woods, uh, our good buddy who is listening here now, uh, we record in Discord for anybody listening who doesn't know. Hey, uh, Robert. How you doing? Live. So Robert Woods, how's it going, man? Uh, he is the director of An Ideal Host, which is a great movie everyone should check out. Uh, but anyway, so before we started, Robert posted in the chat this uh, an article that was um, Tom Hanks talking about his top three Tom Hanks movies. And he it was literally posted the day that we were recording. So it was like very recent from an episode of the Bill Simmons podcast he was on. To clarify, top three Tom- to clarify, uh-huh. to clarify, not the yeah. three movies that he thinks are the best. He did not say these are the top three Tom Hanks movies. He said yes, those were the top three experiences that he has had while making a movie. Yeah, because he's mentioned that I, like I feel like that's an important that's the only distinction. Way he knows how to well, I was that's the only way he he said that's the only way he knows how to rank them because he doesn't usually watch his movies. Although I would like to point out that he has mentioned that Cloud Atlas is one of the only movies of his own that he has watched multiple times. Um, but anyway, on this podcast, he said that his top three Tom Hanks movies were uh, A League of Their Own because he gets to play baseball all the time, 
uh, Castaway because it was just a, an adventure and he was on vacation the whole time. And then the third one was Cloud Atlas. Um, and so I was like, man, I really want to do Cloud Atlas. Like the whole episode, I was just, it was in the back of my mind. And then at the end, I was like, all right, guys, I'm kind of torn. <laughs> and then again, just like little old, I don't know why I keep saying little old Georgie. He's not little. <laughs> um, old Georgie, kind of in the back of my mind, Robert Woods is in the chat like, do it change it and i let him decide <laughs> and so we have robert to thank for all of this and like it was the kind of thing where as soon as i decided at the last minute to change it to cloud atlas i got so fucking excited for this episode like i was excited for road to perdition i love that movie don't get me wrong but this one feels so much more like it it feels like it fits the theme of what we're trying to do with this series which is talk about underappreciated tom hanks movies um and this is a movie that I watched back in like 2013 or so, a little after it had come out. And I remember when I watched it the first time, I kind of like went in with my knives out. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure I had a free Redbox coupon and I couldn't rent the movie I wanted to rent. So I just kind of like, ah, oh, it all to Cloud Atlas. This is going to be what <laughs> like I thought I might get some ironic enjoyment of it. And then I sat down and watched it. And I was like, oh, oh, this is actually pretty good. Um, and so it was kind of in the back of my mind, just as like, yeah, that's better. That's a movie that's better than you would expect it to be. And then on this rewatch, uh, I feel like I even undervalued it that first time around. I think this is an exceptional movie. And I threw myself into it so much that I even like started reading. Or I started listening to the audiobook version of the novel that it's based on. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm all in on Cloud Atlas is what I'm trying to say. So Eric, I think that from now on, whenever you start talking about how you've been listening to an audiobook, just say that you've been reading a book with your ears instead. <laughs> so, Dan, what's your prior information with Cloud mm -hmm. Atlas? When Cloud Atlas came out, I purposely avoided it. Um at this point, the Wachowskis for me had made two good films, Bound and The Matrix. And two that I felt were so overstuffed that I, I didn't know if they were able to come back from that. Uh, I had watched Speed Racer and enjoyed Speed Racer, but Speed Racer is a very slight popcorny, gee whiz, look at all the cool stuff happening on screen type of film. I had read Cloud Atlas. In my mind, there was no fucking way they were making this movie well. No chance. It's a complicated book. It's a subtle book at times, which is something I did not think they had the chops for. The Wachowskis, at my, in my mind at that point, couldn't do subtle to save their fucking life. Um, and I'm not sure if they still did with this film. But no. I, I purposely avoided it. Uh, I didn't watch another Wachowskis film. Until Jupiter Ascending, which sucks. Uh, I, I can't do that movie. I hate that movie. I haven't seen um, yet. I had given up on them. I had given up on them completely. Whatever, whatever I decided on it, I felt like I got the feeling that both of you guys are like, are you fucking kidding me, dude? Why did you do this? <laughs> no, I like when you said it, I liked mm. the challenge. I'm like, fuck it now. Is, there is no better time than now to tackle this film. <laughs> because if I hate it, I'm going to have people I can talk about it with who might either hate it or love it. You know, uh -huh. I'll at least be able to spew vitriol or whatnot about it if I don't enjoy it. So there's nothing worse than watching a film that's like three hours long that you hate and you look around and you can't tell anyone about it. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, have to, I have to keep this, these feelings to myself. <laughs> I'm not going to get on the internet and rage about it. Right. I will get on this internet <laughs> so uh, uh, i went into this oh man <clears throat> very wary because again this is a very good book um i did not know how they were going to pull it off i mean i knew just from you know being pop culturally aware you know six different act- you know every actor was pretty much playing six different roles i did not know how well that was going to work but damn damn they did it <laughs> Damn. This, yep. this is this is competing with the Matrix for me for my favorite Wachowski's film. And that's I'm with you. That's that's, that's a lot. high. That's high praise. Yeah, that's that's saying a lot, because uh some people would say that's the only good Wachowski film. Not saying who those people are, just saying some people would say that. Those people are all wrong. They are wrong. Yeah, yeah they're wrong because bound is excellent. <laughs> no one I actually like have a soft spot for Matrix Reloaded. I'm not a fan. I don't like the third movie that much, but I, I like Reloaded quite a bit. I liked half of Reloaded. <laughs> yeah, there, there's some there's some big swings, and I, I I kind of just like I'm at a point now where even when they fail, like I I can't help but just like admire those swings, like beautiful swings yeah. all of all of the movies. Um, they they don't they don't go with yeah they don't go into things half-assed. That's for sure. I, absolutely, Nathan. What's your prior information on Cloud Atlas? Um, so my prior information is not much. Uh, I've not read the book and I did not see it when it came out and I loved the matrix and I watched reloaded and it is fine. It had issues. It was fine. I still haven't seen the third matrix movie and that's about it. Um, but I, I want to give the Wachowskis their due. I want to go back and watch more of their films and you know like actually give them a fair shake but at the time before i was you know quite as critical with movies as i am now i just it was just like yeah the matrix is awesome and then they fell from grace and it was just kind of like oh the matrix sequels kind of suck and so i just you know didn't really give them uh, much opportunity which you know i I need to i need to go back and watch some of those films uh because as i found out you know two years ago I thought Emmerich films were kind of dumb based off of what people were saying, not based off of my own uh, experience with them. Going back and rewatching them, I was like, oh, holy shit, I love Emmerich. Like, these these are the best movies ever. I love Emmerich. So I need to do the same thing with Wachowskis. I need to go back and watch all of their movies and and have a better appreciation for what they do. And Cloud Atlas, I think, is a great way to start for me. Because it definitely deepened my appreciation for what they do and how they make their movies and what they are able to accomplish through the cinematic language. Aside from that, the only other thing that I knew was, um, you know, a whole lot of white people with Korean prosthetics and that uh, issues. To well, and, lots, you know, you have Korean people doing doing white people prosthetics and, and yeah, black people, black people white, and white people. There's, uh, there's less uh, of an issue with that. Women, doing women, yeah. There's less white of... Women doing an Indian man. Uh. There, there's an issue with that. There's less of a historical uh, d- d- issue with, you know, people dressing up as white people. There is tons of historical context of why it is incredibly problematic for white people to dress up as other races. So that's that's fair. 
So but, that that was a huge we'll piece. It, we, we will talk about that because that was a very big like, oh, right. Cloud Atlas, the racist one. Like that was my context for it. And mm. watching it, I was like, that's so not what this movie is doing. And even though their decision to have white people dressed up as not white people was maybe not the best decision. The movie itself is so saying the exact opposite of that, that I I feel like the message of the movie is a much stronger message with just some misguided decisions. Um, But we're going to get into that. We're going to get into so many things. Let's start, Eric. I love that you, how much you hype up our episodes. Like we're going to do it. We're going to get into this. We're going (laughs) to chew on it and spit it out. And yeah, it's going to happen. Just you wait. And then I'm like, Sunday, it's a- Sunday, Sunday, <laughs> Tuesday, 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 nine o'clock at the Video Monster Thunderdome, Cloud Atlas, <laughs> with the three <sighs> movie nerds talking about a movie. Uh, Eric, <clears throat> yes, sir. What is the quick emphasis on quick summary and recommendation before we start? <laughs> before we start getting into all of the spoilers, because- good luck. Right, hold on. I've got to take a I've got to take a deep breath on this one. Hold on. Okay. Say it all in so, one breath. I, I did well. I can't do that. Uh, <laughs> I don't have much breath. I don't have good breath control. Uh, I did write this out. So uh, all right. So I. <laughs> but Cloud Atlas is a one hundred and two million dollar independent film, uh, which I just find fascinating. That is essentially six different stories set within different time periods and different genres that are woven together to form one epic, century-spanning narrative tapestry. Um, I think that Cloud Atlas is a masterful mashup of pulp and prestige that's tailor-made for someone like me who adores both trashy genre movies and pretentious art house fare. This is fun to read. It's a miracle <laughs> that something like this movie exists, and an even bigger miracle that any of it works. It's an exceptional example of adapt a book to film. It's almost three hours, but it never drags. Always engrossing, gorgeous to look at, surprisingly easy to follow, and a technical marvel. Uh, it's a very singular, strange film and makes such bold narrative choices that I can totally see why it was so polarizing when it came out. At times, it can be a little silly or cheesy or, or misguided or uh, extremely problematic at best. But despite some of these questionable decisions, it is so sincere in its convictions and so audacious in its execution that the message still resonates on a deeply emotional level. I think it's an, I truly, I'm going to stop like reading this like a robot. I think this is truly an extraordinary movie and a daring work of art. Um, and I really hope that it gets like a cultural reevaluation soon because I want more people to take a chance on this movie. Because uh, kind of like what we had hinted at a little bit before, like whether you if you watch this movie, even if you hate it, I think that you'll agree that there's no experience quite like giving yourself over to the madness of Cloud Atlas. It is such a wild ride. And uh, and I think that it is maybe the most underappreciated Tom Hanks movie. So, that's it. That's what I got. Most underappreciated. Most. Yes. 100 percent. Considering he has six roles in this film, I think so. <laughs> I think That's the equivalent I mean, of six other movies that are underappreciated in one film. Well, and the thing too <laughs> is, like most of his movies, people love. Like, like most of his movies are pretty good, and the ones that aren't very good are like they're just not very good. I don't know. Like this is one where I feel like when it came out, it was kind of like it was so divisive and controversial or whatever, and people didn't really get what it was doing. And I I think it's the kind of movie, I think it's one of those classic examples of a movie that like was maybe a little ahead of its time and that people, audiences didn't really know what to make of it um, because there's nothing, 
there's no movie that's like this. There's nothing to compare it to. Like nobody had a touchstone to be like, oh, Cloud Atlas, it's doing this thing that this other movie tried to do. It's like, no, Cloud Atlas is forging its own path. And and I don't know how to process what I'm seeing and what it is doing. Um, Fair enough. So the vast majority of what we are going to be talking about tonight are not about Tom Hanks. Like, I, I am sure yeah. that at times we will mention what he does just like as a point of reference or like, oh, right, we're supposed to be talking about him. But like looking back over all the things that we're going to be talking about tonight, hardly any of it, if any of it is like focused on Tom Hanks. And so it's such an mm. odd choice for our Thanksgiving to be talking about a movie that even though Tom Hanks is, uh, again, like one of the major players in it and his story, I want to say that uh, his storyline has the second most screen time question mark. Um, we, we are barely going to be talking about him. So with that well, in I'm, mind, I'm not oh, sorry, sure if this movie gets made without him though either. Cause this is like, like Eric said, it's a hundred yeah. million dollar independent film. And I don't think people throw their <laughs> money in. If you don't have Hanks there. Sure. Well, and, well they and even mentioned one of the, I was just gonna say real quick. One of the things I read is that they, some of the, a lot of the financing for this movie kind of fell through before they started shooting. And they mm-hmm. only had like 60% of the budget in place because Warner brothers pulled out at one point and then decided to just distribute it once it was finished. And they were like, Oh shit, what do we do? And Tom Hanks was like, we go shoot the movie. We start it and we just hope and pray that the rest of it comes through. And so, like, he was kind of like the voice rallying every rallying the troops together to actually get started on the movie. And, you know, he's like, a steady hand once again. Exactly. Yep. He's a steady hand. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so with some of that in mind, I do want us to just very, very quickly uh, say, because I, this to me is not a thing that we need to focus on, but it is worth mentioning. The acting in this movie is solid throughout, even though I have a lot of problems uh, with the Neo Soul segments with, uh, again, all of the white people dressed up in the Korean prosthetics. The acting itself is great throughout this entire movie. And I mean, mm-hmm. we, we could go into details of like, oh, here's an example of that. Here's another example of that. But just across the board, solid acting. Uh, the two that I would probably mention, uh, just because they're the two that I loved the most, uh, Tom Hanks does the best paul giamatti impression while not actually being paul giamatti <laughs> and secondly yeah he does <laughs> and secondly i fucking love jim broadbent and he he is just just mm-hmm. just a pleasure <laughs> throughout even though yeah his character is kind of despicable just all of his characters they're they're uh not the best people I I still love him, and his segments were some of my favorite. He's he's just hilarious. All right, <clears throat> so let's start getting in to uh to, to some of these bigger to some of these bigger issues. Um, let's start. We we've already started talking about this a little bit with the prior information, but Eric uh-huh. and Dan, both of you have read or listened to part of, if not all, of the uh, the book. I have not, yeah. and so there is very little that I can add to this, but what are some of your thoughts on how this movie was adapted from uh, from book to film? Usually when a complicated book, and I mean, it, it is, it's, it's, it's not Mark Danielewski or anything like that, but it's still a uniquely structured book. It's, a, it's like nesting doll structure where you, yeah. 
you, you really have to work to find a lot of the connections. They're not made apparent as apparent. But it's it's it, it's it's you know it's a well structured book that you can really you really have to sit with to to really appreciate. I feel, and they somehow took a complicated book and made it even more complicated in structure, and it fucking worked. Um, yeah, it's you don't flash, you don't switch stories this quickly because chapters in some instances would be a page long, but it's mm-hmm. it, it's it's a. Absolutely That's, stunning adaptation. It really I, is. I totally agree. I think it's the most impressive thing about this movie is the way that they literally, like, they broke the story, essentially. Like, mm-hmm. I, I was watching a behind-the-scenes thing, and David Mitchell described it as, like, they took apart his Lego book and built a different Lego movie out of the different pieces of it. And, and mm-hmm. it's totally true, like, the like what you said, it has a nesting doll structure where the sixth story, like, it gives you the first half of the first five stories leading into the mm-hmm. sixth story that plays out in its entirety, and then you get the second half of the other stories in reverse chronological order, so it's, like, order. So, mm-hmm. one, two, three, four, five, six, five, four, three, two, one, like a palindrome, mm-hmm. almost. Um, and, and, Whoa, like, when you... Whoa, this is episode three, one, three... Uh, I I knew that whenever he said 313 I was like there's a there's a pattern here there's something going on (laughs) but I I couldn't find the pattern even though it's totally obvious Um, (laughs) but no like and then but like that's the kind of thing that you you can't make that work on film I don't think at all Um, because you you wouldn't be able to draw those parallels as tightly so they essentially like they basically took all of the stories, broke down the scenes onto note cards and literally laid them out and figured out where all the parallels are and kind of put them together. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really extraordinary that it works at all. Because, like, I have this problem. I was thinking about this. I watched the Zack Snyder's Justice League because I am a masochist. And that movie, my biggest problem with that movie is the editing because it jumps around so much between all of the like characters at mm-hmm. the beginning that it makes you feel discombobulated, kind of, and you only get like brief snippets of them. And the biggest problem with that movie is those stories are all leading up to some kind of convergence. Like, you're getting them mm-hmm. separately. They don't really mix together a whole lot. And this movie, it is so deliberately designed for each of these stories to like mm-hmm. parallel one another. And it does that so you can draw all these comparisons. And... I was thinking about this in terms of the editing and how it's it is insane that this movie did not get more praise or like awards or whatever for its editing because it is incredible. Um, but essentially, what this is doing is it's cross cutting six different mm-hmm. stories together. And usually, when you're cross cutting in a film, you're showing parallel action, like you're showing two things that are happening simultaneously. And this movie is doing that with things that mm-hmm. are happening 500 years apart at, at well, time. They are huge comic book fans, the Wachowskis. Uh, uh-huh. So much that they produced V for Vendetta. Yeah. And V for Vendetta itself, along with, and it's funny that you mentioned a Zack Snyder film who did Watchmen, another Alan Moore film. Um, one thing that Alan Moore does, who the Wachowskis have both said they are huge fans of, one of the things that Alan Moore does is he does do a lot of that cross-cutting, but he does it more subtly with images and words where one character's speech in one time will then be overlaid on a panel that has nothing to do with what's yeah. going on prior, but it's thematically important and it ties in through the language, either visually uh, with, with color choices, with, with objects sometimes. And, and we, he does that a lot. Um, Cloud Atlas does that a lot, especially with the little green jewel where yeah. that little green, green jewel is a through, a through line 
you know, over <laughs> 500 damn years. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that's all it takes for you to get to point A to point B is just to see that one jewel. And mm. it's that, that comic book structure that works incredibly well here. I, I mm. can't imagine they didn't like take the lessons they learned from helping produce V for Vendetta and use it here. Yeah. Well, and that, and, that, and again, that's why I think that's it's so brilliant to do it this way because, like, <clears throat> again, if you're showing this parallel action, the implication, you know, as an audience member, we understand intuitively that like these things sh- are happening at the same time in most cases, but they're not. And so, like, the smart thing about it is it's like folding all of these temporalities together to show you the ripple effect of time, to show you that mm-hmm. despite the fact that these stories are all totally separate and don't share any of the same character or characters or whatever. Um, you know, like you, you draw those connections so much tighter. Um, and and I I think, and, and the other thing that's brilliant about it too, is it gives all of the stories equal dramatic weight, I think, you know, especially because it kind of shows you how all of the stories are kind of structured very similarly. There is, um, a sequence where there are like three different escapes happening simultaneously. You have uh, Sonmi and uh, I can't remember Jim Sturgis' character's name in the Neo Soul section. Um, they're escaping out of a compound, and you have um, you have Frobisher basically trying to escape from Vivian Ayers, and then you also have Timothy Cavendish, Jim Broadbent, escaping from a like <laughs> retirement home that he has been locked in. And they you have so the best escape sequence. They're so radically and different and radically different in tones. One of them is almost more of like a, an emotional escape. Well, I mean, I guess the Frobisher storyline does involve him also shooting Jim Broadbent. Um, <laughs> one of them is like a very goofy. We're trying to escape a nursing home and we can't figure out how to push the start button on a car because yeah. I can't find the key. That's the feel good British hit of the year that always makes a few Oscar nominations right there. Right. Yeah. But yeah. And then there's like this shootout. And all of these things are happening simultaneously. And if they were their own separate movies, you would have this different feeling about like how dramatic this actually is. But by juxtaposing them all together, you understand that all of them are equally important um, because they all affect one another. Like if Timothy Cavendish does not escape from this old folks home, then that never leads to the revolution that happens in the Son Me story in Neo Soul. And, and it's just so brilliant. Like, because again, these stories all are so different and on their own don't carry that equal weight. But when you put them together, you see like one cannot exist without the other. Um, it's yeah, yeah, this remarkable. We're not quite to this, but uh, you know, directly relates to what you just said. This is a very emotional experience of a movie. So regardless of whether or not people are following the uh, like the coherence of the timelines or whether or not they're following some of the jumping back and forth, if you just kind of let the movie happen to you, you will get yeah. tied up emotionally. And so, yeah, like those three escape scenes, I could very easily see how it would be incredibly frustrating to people like, oh, my God, just like stick with one of these. I just want to see one escape happening. But... Mm that's not the point. Like, you know, like you said, all of these stories are kind of following the same arc. And so you're watching all of them happen at the same time. It's kind of like, uh, I I don't have a specific movie in mind, but uh, tons of movies do this where it's like, uh, like a a person, a character that's grown up 
And so they're doing something as an adult, but what they're doing is mirroring something that they did as a kid. And so like the jumping back and forth where, you know, like as a kid, they're going yeah. on this journey to go do blah, 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 blah. And now as an adult, they're also going on a journey, but it's a very different kind. And so it's doing that kind of thing where it's cutting back and forth. And so it's giving you, this is the experience that these characters are going through. It doesn't matter whether or not we stay with mm. this one scene during the most exciting part because it's not about the excitement of this escape it's about the importance of freedom and escaping oppression across mm. all timelines so yeah that's- yeah it, it's incredible too like how it like so many of the things that are set up in one story arc are paid off in an entirely different story arc in such like interesting ways like the one that i find so interesting is jim sturgis's character is like adam ewing his arc is kind of like how he starts off as a lawyer who's going off and like brokering a deal for a slave trade or whatever. And then a sa- a slave saves his life essentially. And that kind of leads to him becoming an abolitionist, which you don't see in that first storyline, but you see that payoff later in Neo soul when he is literally like leading a revolution. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's just so fascinating. And like, it's, it's interesting to see how you can trace the character arcs from the actors within each different character that they play across the Mm storylines. And again, like the fact that they had the audacity to even do that is insane. Like the fact that they were confident enough in their ability to make that happen. And the fact that they trusted the audience enough to like follow along and like catch all of those story beats and stuff. It's really like, I'm just, it blows me away. I think it's astounding that that this movie, there was so much trust going all the way across the board with this film. One yeah, of my, uh, I, mean, I, I only watched one or two of the special features, but one of the things was like, they, you know, Hanks was talking about, you know, just reading all the script and they're like, oh, so you understood? And he's like, no, no, of course not. <laughs> this is the type of thing where they were talking about how one day you're on this set and you're in this time frame. The next day you're on this set in a completely different time frame with a completely different director and a different crew. And you're going back and forth because it wasn't film. It was filmed concurrently, but not yeah. definitely not in order <laughs> on either. And we haven't. That, I'm glad you mentioned that because we haven't given um, any credit so far to uh, Tom Tickfer, who is the yeah. third director of the film. The Wachowskis really only did the the first story, which we haven't even mentioned. The Pacific Journal of Adam Ewing, which is the one in 1849, that's kind of like a historical epic. Um, and then they they did. The three, and then they did the last two. So they did the sci-fi, the dystopian sci-fi Neonar one that's in like twenty-one forty-four, and a Rising of Sonmi four five one, and then they did the last one, the post-apocalyptic one with Tom Hanks that's Lucius Crossing and everything after. <laughs> and then Tom Tickford did the middle three letters from Zadelheim with Ben Wishaw as like the kind of bisexual composer. It's like a historical social drama. Uh, and he did Half Lives, the first Louisa Ray mystery, which is like the probably my favorite because it's like a '70s journalistic thriller with Halle Berry. And then he did the ghastly ordeal of Timothy Cavendish with Jim Broadbent, which is the present day story. <laughs> the, the best. That's more like a British farce. <laughs> Sorry, it's, that was a mouthful. Yeah. It it also yeah. Uh, the Timothy Cavendish one is also the best of the stories. Because of oh, that's Jim fascinating. Because I think it is easily the weakest. I love it, but I think it is easily the weakest of them. <laughs> See, I'm of the point where I I really want to watch all six of these films. Like, yeah, I want six separate movies to be made from these. 
God, there's so much happening. Let's start getting in to some of these actual themes. Um, okay. The first one that we've got here is fate versus free will. And Eric, this was one of the ones that you added. So what are some of the, the main things that you wanted to mention or that you wanted us to talk about with the fate versus free will discussion of cloud Atlas? The way that this movie approaches it is, is pretty fascinating because the whole idea behind the movie is that like our actions have like basically the ripple effect that our actions have, not just on our own lives, but on future generations, essentially. I find it so interesting in this movie because so much of this movie is about like <clears throat> how we are born into these very specific circumstances and a lot of like who we are as a human being is not necessarily predetermined, but like so much of who we, how we grow up and who we are is based on things like, um, you know, what kind of, you know, where we were born, the time period that we were born in, the systemic issues of the time. Um, the the, the natural order that's referred the, to. The natural frequent. order, yes. Yeah, as as yeah. Hugo Weaving's character kind of puts it. And, and like, gosh, I'm trying to even, like, grasp onto the narrative thread of, like, how to even go about this. Maybe, so like, let's, takes on so much. So let, I, let's, I think the idea is let, more let's like, start, are let's we start with the end with that. by... What? Since you were just talking about, like, if I was born at a different time, if I was born at a different place, how would that affect my life? How would that have an impact on things? How would that change what's going on? Let's actually start yeah. at the end and then work back a little bit okay. with very specifically uh, and help me out with the actors names, because, again, aside from like Tom Hanks and Hugo Weaving, uh, I, I don't have them pulled up. Um, but the the dude back in, um, you know, like colonial America. That is six ship. Sure. Him. Uh, when he's talking to his dad, Hugo Weaving, and uh, his father in law. Father in law. Sorry. Thank you. Uh, and he's like, you know, what are you doing uh, wanting to be an abolitionist? You know, it's not going to change anything. You're going to be looked down on in society and all this other stuff. And, you know, like you're going against the natural order of things. And mm-hmm. what you're doing isn't going to amount to much more than just, you know, like a drop in the ocean. And and then uh, uh, his response, Sturgis's response, is like, "What is an ocean uh, if nothing? Or what what more is an ocean? What are the line is about? What is ocean? an ocean but a multitude of drops? Multitude Thank of you. drops. It's, yeah, it's literally my very last note that I wrote on the film. So <laughs> yeah. so it's, it's that just such a great thematic closing point right there. Well, especially because you then over the course of the film see all of these drops in the ocean you see how this one right. small event has an impact and that how that yeah. event has an impact and how that has an impact and how that has an impact leading all the way to especially the neo soul section with um when son me who is essentially like a, a matrix fabricated person leading the revolution and essentially becoming mm-hmm. a god to future societies Right. And and so yeah. like yeah, living back in colonial America, trying to go against the system of slavery, it's like oh man, what is even the point? Like all that you're doing is making life more difficult for your family. And then you fast well, forward. It, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say this film actually does a really great job of. I mean, there are revolutions throughout this film, but the film really does a great job of showing you different scale like there are micro revolutions and there are these grand right. macro revolutions like in, in in your favorite story nathan um 
the revolution is old people escaping a home. And then when they get to that bar, convincing the other Scots in the bar that these Englishmen are going to do them wrong. Yep. And that's what overthrows that that particular system yeah. is some drunken Scotsman. Well, or, but, you know, but even then, from a soccer match. But even then, there's also the history of you know, like English oppression on Scotland. So even within yeah. that story, <laughs> there's still that historical yeah, context. The Hispanic factory worker who is, we're guessing, illegal because boss man isn't there that day. You know, no, no illegals, no illegals. Mm. Who takes down Hugo Weaving's, you know, hitman? <laughs> Just a little tiny yeah. thing that has very, very. But again, by making it an illegal Hispanic worker, a factory mm. worker, less, it's talking much, much broader themes. Yeah, and who's also tiny, played by. Who's also played by Duna Bay, who plays Son Me. So she goes from being the illegal factory worker to then being the thing yeah. that was created in a factory, in a factory. for corporate. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. No, that I think that's the thing. Like when it when it comes to fate versus free will, I, I think about so much about how so much of who we are is defined by the social constructs of our time, essentially. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's really interesting is all of the in each of the stories, all of the main characters are in some way a prisoner of whatever system that they are in. You know, Adam Ewing is, or yeah, and the first is a prisoner on the ship essentially because he is being poisoned by Tom Hanks because Tom Hanks tells him he has a brain worm or whatever and he's poisoning <laughs> him to get his treasure. And then, uh, you know, in the in the second story, Ben Wishaw wants to be a great composer and he works as an amanuensis for this other composer who then like, eventually kind of like blackmails him because he finds out that he is gay and it's the 1930s. And, mm-hmm. you know, Halle Berry is a black woman in the seventies trying to solve this big conspiracy and people don't take her seriously because she is a woman, because she is black, because, and also because she is going up against this big corporate corporation or whatever. Mm-hmm. So like, I, oh. I don't want to go on and on with all of the stories, but like what I, what I love most about it is like, yes, we are, in some ways faded we are a at some in some cases we can be victims of the circumstances in which we are born or we do have to work within these social constructs but we do always have a choice to fight back against these social constructs that constrain us like the movie in some ways is i would say overall it's about like kindness and empathy but it's also kind of about like freedom and how we actually achieve that and whether it is you know what what that means to each of us and i mean one of the rallying cries in the Neo soul one is, you know, we must fight and if necessary die to tell people the truth. And that's mm-hmm. pretty much all of the battles are, are people telling their truths. Yeah, exactly. Um, no matter, you know, how small, <laughs> whether it's no, I'm not being poisoned by a brain worm. Um, and I think this, this escape slave is actually kind of awesome um, <laughs> to, you know, Neo soul Logan's run for replicants type of thing going on. Yeah. Um, it's all, you know, they're all, and it's another word that they discuss over and over again, are, are the boundaries. We all have yeah. boundaries. Uh, whether it's tanks in, you know, the post-apocalyptic world who's just, they don't trust the people coming from off-world because they just live in the valley. That's their mm-hmm. world. You know, and going to this, the literal, you know, violation of, of a boundary that he doesn't want to cross in order to transcend and elevate by literally yeah. going up a mountain, you know? 
that's that's my favorite uh my favorite line in the movie is the one that ben wishaw says where he says boundaries are conventions waiting to be transcended i think that is right just such a, <laughs> such a beautiful statement it is like i think that is yeah. the mission statement of the film is like what are these boundaries why do they exist do they need to exist and I kind of want to talk about one of the things this film has that like ten different great mission statements. Oh, it's got so say. many. It has I, so I, I, many. I wrote down so many quotes on our notes here. I put a quote next to each of our main points because I realized after I put all the main points down that there is a quote that fits every single one of them in the yep. movie. Uh, but yeah, the <laughs> this movie for, isn't exactly uh, subtle with some of the messages it's trying to convey. Um, before you it's, move on, but it doesn't. I don't think it, it needs it's, to be. I, like, I'm glad that it's not sure. Especially because there's so many other things happening that at certain times it almost needs to be like, hey, all this craziness that you've just been watching. Here's why. Like, here's the message. So, yeah, I'm I'm Mm. fine with it, like spelling it out before you move on to your next point, uh, because it looked like you were trying to look in the notes for something. um, One of the other things that I wanted to mention in regards to, you know, like these systems of oppression and in in regards to um, like all of these all of these. Uh, revolutions whether they be you know tiny individual revolutions or these big grand um, war scale uh, revolutions it seems like most of these stories are revolutions for the next generation which again is why the movie needs to be told the way that it is is because Mm -hmm. you know like how many movies have there been about slavery and an abolition and you know like you know what happens next because history um but the movie so very rarely like shows the people fighting for this and then those people also being the ones who benefit from that freedom or uh yeah. or even in most Son- cases their revolutions fail yeah or even like with Sony, you know like uh th- there was some of that conversation of uh basically like we're dying if we have to die, then we have to die because we are doing this for future generations. We are doing this because people need mm-hmm. to know the truth. We're, and so, um, yeah, even though all of these stories are great and I do want to watch all of these movies, like as individual movies, I think that's one of the things that that Cloud Atlas did that so few other movies do that needed to be done the way that it was to show, like... It's a weird sort of like the the revolutions of past societies will have an impact on the freedom of current societies, but also mm-hmm. humans are fucking assholes, and there is always going to be oppression, and so like there's always that yeah. next battle, battle. There's always that next battle. There's always that next system of oppression that <clears throat> then needs <throat> to be addressed, and. Yeah, I, I think that this movie gives a very weird sense of both hope and. Um, like almost fatalistic doesn't matter what you do there's always going to be oppression if it's not this kind it's going to be that kind and and it's so weird because it's like that's true i disagree to a certain extent i'm not saying that's what it's trying to do i'm saying that it's looking back across all of history and that is true like as one regime is toppled another one pops up which sometimes is even worse. Like that is just mm-hmm. a thing that history has done. So it makes course that it's, you can, yeah, I, I love the way the movie tracks all of those systems of oppression through the Hugo weaving character. Like he is always the, he, he's the one who stands in the natural, in favor of the natural order of things. He's always the one who's trying to uphold these, these systems. Um, and, and I love the way that like, you know, he's, 
you know, he's the guy who's arguing against uh, Adam Ewing going into to become an abolitionist. He's the one who's the hitman for the corporation. He's um, the nurse. Remember. The nurse he's ratchet. The, yeah, he's he's the nurse ratchet, <laughs> nurse Noakes or whatever at the nursing home, and I love that uh, he's also so he's like uh, like a corporate stooge or whatever in the mm-hmm. in the neo soul situation. His his role is a little unclear in that one, but I love that in the last uh, story he's essentially a ghost because in the last story, like he's more like a has demon fallen. than a ghost. He's a, yeah, he's a demon. That's that's a that's a better that's a better way to say it. Um, but, but I love the idea in my mind, I think of him as a ghost because he is the old institutions haunting Tom Hanks, trying to get him to make the mistake. So that way he can like, the whole thing is about like, he needs a power imbalance so he can stay on top essentially. Mm -hmm. Or like, at least he's propping up the institutions. He's basically like the people who defend like the systemic oppression, despite the fact that they are also victims of the systemic oppression to a certain extent. But I love that in that last one, he's the one who's like whispering in Tom Hanks's ear, like trying to get him to do the wrong thing. So that way the imbalance of power can tip back into his favor. Maybe and, not necessarily and his and in that case, but in the favor of... Who's, the, who's the one man that humanity leans into to fight the demon? Tom, Tom Hanks. Hanks. Tom Hanks. <laughs> <laughs> And and again, like that's what's cool about his over. character too is, as we mentioned Prevail. before, like he starts off the movie as a villain, like he is poisoning and murdering this guy, and with each successive story, he gets a little bit better and better. Um, does he to though? To a certain extent, like yeah, I th- mean, in the th- second th- one, he, he is really in the second one, better? he's the kind of greedy hotel manager who takes the vest from Ben Whishaw. Yeah. In the third one, he is. In the third one is where he starts to make that change. To a certain extent, because he's Isaac, the like blonde-headed well, guy, and ha- him, the scene with him and Halle Berry on the balcony is like you, my favorite. He, he does so throw good. a critic off a off a balcony in the next thing. <laughs> yeah, like that's but the thing is you, you get the you sense get, that he is like on. <clears throat> you get one he's, scene he's and a, then he blows up, and then he throws a dude off a balcony. Right. Well, and and by the way, like that's tell me that's not tell me that's not the Wachowskis taking a stab at critics right there. <laughs> I mean, oh God, it's. <laughs> Yeah, it's what so is good. a critic but one who reads quickly, arrogantly, but never wisely? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, and what what what's good about the arc though is it is like a it's like a typical bell curve kind of thing where like in the third one he tries to do the right thing and the system pushes back and murders him. Like he's he's <laughs> like I, this is a sign. I feel like something good is coming of this. I can't explain it, but like I know that I am involved in something important. And then he blows up. And in his mind, he thinks like he's fallen in love with Louisa or whatever. It, it's kind of like unclear, but he knows that he's doing something good. And he thinks it's something that involves his life because he has no context for what's coming in the second. Like, and then he dies. And then in the next life or whatever, where he's Dermot, like Dermot is like sort of trying to go straight. He's like, <laughs> I'm a, a cockney gangster. God, he's so fucking hilarious. When he when he says, Oi, Timothy, like when he, is ridiculous. When he first pops into frame. Is so funny, but yeah, anyway, it's so like, jarring. It's kind of so jarring it's to hear so that. So jarring and so weird. But like, I love this one because it's it's really funny. It fits the tone of the thing. But like, he's trying to go straight. He's like, I am going to write knuckle sandwich and tell my story to like help future generations. But he still has that like thing nagging at him where it's like, oh fuck this critic. I'm trying <laughs> to do good, and he's gonna like the man's trying to put me down. I'm gonna throw him over a balcony. 
See, Roland Emmerich, uh, this is how you respond to critics. You don't name a character after them. You literally toss you throw them on the balcony. Godzilla also, should have the, eaten them. In the fifth story, I love that in the fifth story, he's just, I like to think that he's just playing Tom Hanks, playing <laughs> Timothy Cavendish in that story, because he's playing an actor who's yeah. doing the the movie of Timothy Cavendish. And then in the last one, he's he's like the kind of, you know, meek, farmer who has to rise to the occasion he finally does and he finally succeeds like again it's it's all about making all of these little decisions and failing over and over until you get it right which is why i love the theme of reincarnation because it's like we just we do it over and over until we get it right um which is this is the thing i was going to bring up a minute ago before we got off on this other tangent i want i think it's time to to tackle the elephant in the room nathan with the casting and the idea of the actors playing multiple roles. Sure. Um, because I love the idea behind it. Um, especially within this kind of like fate versus free will and the social constructs we have to fight back against. And I think the idea is not just to draw parallels between all these characters and to create these interesting character arcs that reverberate across time, but it also is kind of showing you that things like gender and race are also to a certain extent, social constructs. They are things that do define us, but they're also like, they're things that kind of determine the path that we're going to take in life to a certain extent, but we don't have to let them define us unless we want them to. And I absolutely, I'm a hundred percent sympathetic to anybody who has a problem with, especially the white characters playing Asian characters. Like, it, I, I am a white man. I have no looks horse in this race. Like so I so bad too. Like it, uh, even aside, the, the makeup is even aside bad. from the like uh, the social issues and like you know the the historical context of like why it's so problematic. It just looks bad. Like it it looks like it looks like someone just like shoved play doh all over their face and it's like all right, that's you now. Go go be that person. It looks bad. I, I, they're kind of doing that though to shove it directly in our face to show what we've done all along yeah. and I, again, I can't not look at this without seeing the lens of who the Wachowskis are as they're making this film um, mm. at this point Lana had already transitioned and oh, I'm forgetting Lily, the other, had. Lily had not yet yeah. um, and I think Lily might have still been struggling with making that final step where Lana hadn't, where Lana already had, um, and I think I think one of the one of the quotes that I I picked out of this was, um, "If I had remained invisible, the truth would stay hidden." And I think this is them literally throwing the truth as to throughout the years, like just yeah. throwing it right out there at us. Like you have, yeah. we have done caricatures in all of this for a century. Look at it now. We're taking your most beloved actors and having them do this. How mm -hmm. does that make you feel? Yeah, it's like it, it is. I think, they're, they're, I think they're being confrontational with it more than anything. Or um, it's, it's not like the Wachowskis couldn't find actors of appropriate ethnicity. They're littered throughout the film already. Yeah, they're also transcend. Like that's also the whole. The thing is, they're also transcending. They're like. One of the things that really stuck out to me was I was watching some of the um, 
kind of behind the scenes stuff. And Halle Berry is talking about how like they called her up and they're like, hey, we want you to play these roles. You're going to be a Jewish woman in the 1930s. And she was like, oh, wow, like I would never be able to do this in Mm -hmm. any other movie. Like these are not the kind of roles that I get. And so much of this movie is about like other people calling people out. Like, again, the first story is about slavery and they are... (laughs) Atua is someone who is literally going to be murdered despite the fact that he is the best sailor on that ship. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and when when Halle Berry goes to talk to Hugh Grant in the Louisa Ray story, he's like, oh, yeah, if all women look like you, I'd be more into this women's lib thing. You know, like so, so mm-hmm. much of this movie is just calling people out on their appearances. And I like the idea of they're literally forcing these actors to step into the shoes of another person you know it is it is empathy in its most essential form to a certain extent and again i don't want to defend anything like you know this this movie was called out by um uh the shit uh the media action network for asian americans you know because they were criticizing like saying hey asian actors already have a hard enough time getting roles in movies like you know maybe you should have asian actors in these asian roles and i get that i absolutely do but I do think it's important to kind of keep the context of what they're trying to do in mind. I, yeah, and um, I mean, they haven't made a lot of pictures since then, but their show Sense8 had one of the most di- you know, diverse casts. Ever. I mean, even The Matrix, like The Matrix has an yeah. incredibly diverse cast. Like, I think that, that's something that they're always so, trying to do in their movies. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't think we would have blockbusters with the cast that we we wouldn't have movies like Eternals, which have, you know, characters yeah. from all over area i think without them pushing it forward in major blockbuster films yeah so, so Nathan, they, go ahead. You, they, i know you have a lot to say about this i well <laughs> oh. so with um with the wachowski's uh, personal journey you know that has kind of been played out in the public eye and with the themes of the movie and with the things that they have done in other films i do think that it is a much more nuanced issue Rather than just, oh, they're wildly racist. Like, I don't think that that is the case. I think that it is a much more nuanced conversation. And I think that uh, a lot of the things that both of you were saying are part of that nuance. You know, like Dan with uh, they're they're forcing you to confront it. You know, like if you had a movie with a a person in blackface and they were doing it to Mm -hmm. call out, this is how bad it is. Yeah, it's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. And so there could have been part of that going on or there could have been part of the, you know, giving people the opportunities to experience different cultures and experience different roles and, you know, uh, sort of giving giving some of the actors the, uh, you know, walk a mile in another person's shoes kind of thing. And so I do think that what they were trying to do and how they were trying to go about it is a much more nuanced conversation that we could do an entire podcast just on that topic. Mm. I also think that because of nuance, I don't know if this film was necessarily the film for that sort of nuanced conversation with how prominent it was displayed. Like if it had been a character that uh that had the prosthetics to look like a a korean character i think that that would be a a different story of just like okay here's like one character being a different person (laughs) but yeah if if it was why not 
not make it all characters. You what I'm what I'm saying, what I'm saying yeah, I'm is if it say. was a like if there was just like little pieces here and there <laughs> rather than all of the characters except for the it, essentially the only characters in Neo Soul that were Korean were like the fabricants. So every other well, character okay. What's that telling us, though, about Americans with our Asian fetishism when it comes to stuff, you know? No, it's like, and again, I no, think, I mean, I the, think the, that there's... Even kind of, again, I think that there's a lot of nuance there. I Again, I mm. think that there is a nuanced conversation that can be had there. I think that... They also speak English, which is... Yeah, the, they also speak English. They also... This is in the future, and so, you know, you would think that maybe there's, like, a bit more uh, of, like, a melting pot where things have changed a little bit more. My point is... I don't necessarily think that either of you are wrong. And I don't think based off of a lot of other information, I don't think that the Wachowskis were trying to do wrong, but I think that because of just how complicated nuanced things are, I think that I, I, I just think that at, again, at best it was problematic mm. just in the way that some I will it was give- handled and the way that some of these issues were addressed. And I, Mm. I'll give you credit. It, it, it just it, thing, it bugs me. It does bug me. The the movie does not do blackface, which yeah. is the right decision, but also kind of reveals the double standard that they mm-hmm. have going for it. So <clears throat> I, I definitely, I mean, again, I think it's a hundred percent fair to to criticize the movie for that. Mm-hmm. I also feel like, like the thing I ask myself is, does this decision to have these characters do this make it a stronger work of art and i think again this is just me as a white dude who has my view represented every fucking thing ever made <laughs> i think it does make this a stronger movie i am absolutely receptive to any arguments to so the here here is my people of color here's my rebuttal to that or not necessarily even a rebuttal one of the things that I was thinking as I was watching this, especially because it's, you know, essentially the same cast telling all six stories, this feels very stage play-esque. It feels very much like a, a small production company that is putting on a, a stage production and it's like, all right, we have these 10 people telling all six of these stories. And so, all right, you white dude, you're now playing an old woman. All right. Yeah, Hanks in one of the things actually compares it to a repertory theater. Yeah. That's what he felt like when he was doing it. Like it was a repertory theater doing six different stories. Yeah. And so like from that perspective and from again, like the uh, the moviness of it, I think that it is fine for the characters or for the actors and actresses to play those characters. Like I don't I don't again, because of that, because of the that sort of uh, repertory theater, I'm fine with it. But at the same time, mm. even if, you know, you, you did go to like a small production company that did have six different stories put on by the same 10 people, if a white dude came out in blackface, like that would be a problem. If a white dude came out with his eyes taped up to look like an Asian American, that would be a problem. Here's mm. here is where this issue gets it, even here's well, hold on, hold on. Here's where the issue gets okay. even more nuanced and as much as I want us to essentially do an entire episode on this, we do still have a lot of other things to talk about. And so I don't want us to get too deep into this conversation that it takes us an hour to get out of it. If they didn't have the characters 
um, with the Korean makeup, then there would have been the complaints of whitewashing the story. So I, I think that because of what was being done and how it was being done and all of these other factors, I do think that they kind of, that the Wachowskis kind of put themselves in an impossible situation with all right, yeah. we can either whitewash the story and have just the same white people playing white people in the future in, in Korea. But you know, now it's just full of white people instead of Koreans or they have them in just uncanny Valley, horrible makeup. It just, it just again, it, yeah. it looks bad like that, that. That is a separate issue. It is a much more minor issue, but every single time that a character other than son me was on screen in uh, Neo soul, I was like, this takes me out of it. I just I, I hate looking oh. at it. Well, that's the, for me, it made it made me uncomfortable. And I think I mean, they had a hundred million dollars. I think they could have done it a little better had they wanted to. I think they wanted you to sit there and look at it and feel a little uncomfortable about it. I mean, you look at the makeup job on on some of the other characters in the movie. Yeah. I mean, the makeup can be a little inconsistent, but like uh, the one that kind of blows my mind is um when ben wishaw plays georgette in the timothy cavendish thing i was like is that like fucking vanessa redgrave like it, it yeah it didn't i knew that it was somebody that was not yeah. like i knew it had uh, yeah, one of the principal cast members but i was like i have no idea who this is and yeah it's, where it's, it's like incredible. i didn't know until the special features oh that was so-and-so doing that okay mm. that's and like Old Tom Hanks with his scar, and he looks like Jeff Bridges, kind of is that's <laughs> yeah. like an extraordinarily, extraordinarily great makeup job. Yeah, so I, I think they had to have done a little bit of that on purpose, just to. I don't think it was oh, we just couldn't get it right. I think they're like, nope, we want this. Yep. I you know, again, look I at it and feel weird, man. You look know, and also the the worst one of of all, I think, is is actually not any of the neo soul people. It's old Hugh Grant, where it looks like he's literally melting. <laughs> In the Timothy Cavendish story, like he looks see, like something out of a they also did movie. The best, they also did the best transformation on Hugh Grant because they made Hugh Grant into a believable cannibalistic warlord. Oh, f- it's insane. <laughs> we haven't talked about Hugh Grant enough. I love Hugh Grant and I love that <laughs> he's always a villain in this movie and it is so Anyone insane. Who can make, yeah, Hugh Grant, a badass, has done an amazing job because <laughs> that man is the antithesis of badass. So yeah, I'm so fascinated by him. This week. Last last thing on this, because again, we could easily just keep going down uh, this trail and, and spin forever here. Last thing that I want to say before we move on to the next topic is again, I, because of all of the other pieces of information, because of all of the other context of uh, again, the Wachowski's own personal transitions, because of all of these other very serious themes that were being addressed because of all of the things that they've done in other movies, like because of all of this and because of how they were making cloud Atlas, I don't get the gut feeling that they were unaware. And I don't think that they were doing anything intentionally insensitive. No, I, uh, again, at best, I think that they just kind of put themselves in an impossible situation. And I, I do think that they probably had a lot of conversations about, well, shit, what's the best way to go about this? There's not a best way. Mm. Well, that's that's the thing. I think, Every single part of this movie feels so thoroughly thought through that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like they, they did not do this lightly. Right. At all. Does that mean that they made the best decision? No, but 
with watching the movie in comparison to, again, the conversation that surrounded it when it first came out before I ever saw it, what I saw, I feel like is different than the conversations that surrounded it. I don't feel like it was intentional. I do feel like it was misguided. I I feel like their decision was intentional, but I don't think that the, uh, I don't think that there was an intent to be insensitive. And I think that all of these other things were going into play. And, you know, like Dan said, maybe it was a very intentional we're trying to make you uncomfortable. Um, maybe, but like no other part of the movie is trying to force you into that discomfort in that way. And so that also feels out of place. That's the most uncomfortable reality though, too. But, but it's also, that's, they also that's did the it, most you know, extreme reality of the five, of the six, but they also did it like yeah. in the future. They did it in, so they did it in a fantasy world that there was more leeway to bend some of those rules in a way that could have been a little, I'm just saying. It'd be insane if they weren't actually Koreans. That's just a process everyone in the future undergoes. Like something something about people. That's what that's all. It's it's like Romulans. That's just, and maybe that's why they have, yeah, they have fabricants because it's the only way to make people look normal again, because they're so like, all the the pollution and shit from all the corporations. So we have to create these clones of people that actually look beautiful. If there had been, because Hugh Grant in the future does not look beautiful. He looks like if there had been any of that stuff, if there had been any of the, this is the way the world is, or uh, like Dan, you mentioned this earlier because of like current modern, you know, Asian fetishism, like maybe there was this push for like everyone to, you know, get surgery to look like they are Asian American or to look like they are like, that could have been a thing. We don't know. And, if there had been a little bit more of that to give, to give an explanation, not necessarily a justification, but to give some mm. sort of, Hey, we know that this is an issue. Here's what we're doing with it again, especially because they, they literally spell out other parts of the story. They literally say, this is what you're doing. Like, um, uh, the, the, the like seventies, um, like crime thriller, you know, shaft style one, where Halle Berry's neighbor is like, oh, in every good mystery story, I'm going to tell you the next plot point of the story. Right. So like he's the one who writes the book that, uh, but writes the actual book that Jim Broadbent reads, but the Louisa Ray thing throughout the movie, they are spelling it out for you to have an entire segment, a pretty prominent segment too, to be so, um, it is it is Overt, harder like it is spelling it out for you it's no to to have <laughs> to have a section that is so prominent to try to be more subversive and to try to make you uncomfortable without giving some of that context it feels out of place from the rest of the story so even though i, I do think I that, that I is think the whole movie is about making people in power uncomfortable that's the whole like, i'm sorry, i'm I mean, just also, I mean, i'm just saying on, but that's I'm just saying, so I think that there are issues with it, and I think those issues are, are major issues, but again... I think it's fair. It, I, I also think mm. that there are nuanced issues that were not necessarily the intention. Um, all right. Uh, let's move on, because we still have a few more things to talk about, including, mm. does this movie actually work? 
Um, I'm I'm also looking at the uh, the notes that uh, Robert is tossing into the chat about you know like the the editing and the cinematography and the music and the visual effects and like so so many many of the technical stuff. Yeah, we we skipped over a ton because I knew that was like we have a lot of themes that we're going to be discussing. Uh, But yes, all of those, all of the amazing cinematography throughout uh, the chase sequence in Neo Soul, like, oh my God, that is such a great sequence. Way better than uh, the the dumb, uh, the one in uh, Star Wars Episode 2 where, like, you have Anakin (laughs) jumping out of the window and they're, like, flying through. This is done so Uh, much better than that. Uh, Absolutely, it's very good. The Wachowskis are just, like, they just understand cinema on a on such an instinctual level they understand how to visually make something look fucking amazing at all times yeah and how to communicate yeah. things yeah. visually so well and, and tom and, and, too, and, like and, i'm actually like as well i mean his his segments yeah. are no no slouch when it comes to you know kinetic action and i mean the guy made run lola run and that film's just amazing so yeah, this is anytime Anytime there's an action set piece in one of his films, I'm excited. But he also does the quiet really well. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I, he's so, uh, he's really. I've never seen any of his. Uh, I've never even seen Run Run Run. Oh, run. Monster, I haven't seen watch. any of his other movies, but I I need to because he's he's really like he he holds his own against the Wachowskis. Like if I were him, I would be more intimidated than anybody because it's like Fuck, I've got to make movies that have to compete <laughs> with what they're doing, and like in, even in the, the same action movie. In the same movie, exactly, yeah, and like the action sequence he does in the Louisa Ray segment is like the one where uh, any of the stuff with Bill Smoke, like Hugo Weaving as the assassin, is amazing, and like that sequence where he's like Terminator chasing them through San Francisco, and Keith David's like fighting him and getting a shootout with it, like that shit is so visceral and so good in a very grounded kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very different from what the Wachowskis are doing, but no less impactful. And he also he does the music uh, along with two other composers. I don't have their names pulled up right now. I'm not familiar with them, but the music in this movie so is but, but, ex- but, exceptional. It oh yeah, Perfume of Love Story is damn good. Before we get back, right on that one, before we get back into some of the themes, uh, since we got on some of this technical tangent, um, uh-huh. you know, Dan, Dan, you mentioned this earlier that like the entire movie kind of plays like a graphic novel just in terms of the cinematic language that the Wachowskis use. But um, mm-hmm. with some of this conversation with uh, what Robert's put in the chat and with some of the things that we've been talking about, uh, you know, Robert put that uh, Tyker is a composer. And so like mm-hmm. his use of music and understanding of music and we kind of get into this or we have uh, notes somewhat related to this uh, in, in just a little bit, but there's also a very heavy use of music and art and storytelling within the confines mm-hmm. of cloud Atlas. And along with this movie playing kind of like a graphic novel, it also very much plays like, um, you know, like an or- orchestral piece in terms of, you know, 100%. some of the, the yeah. prelude that gives you here is this musical um uh and i'm drawing a blank on the exact um wording but like this is giving you this theme in terms of you're going to hear yeah. this throughout the rest of the story and then here's the, the melody mo- yeah like like yeah like the melodies yeah, motifs uh, and so like you get some of that at the beginning like you hear in uh, like in an actual orchestral piece you know maybe you have just the flutes playing part of their section to hone you in on 
this is something to focus on with the flautists. And then you have percussions. And mm. so like you get some of that at the beginning and then it builds and it crescendos. And then, you know, like they're all doing what they were doing at the beginning, but in a much more complicated fashion and they're inter, uh, interweaving. And so like you mm. get all of that building and then it slowly starts coming back down and then ending mm. with some of those motifs that you had at the very beginning. So this movie very much does play like a, a piece of music, which is oh, both fascinating yeah, and beautiful. But yes, yeah, and- <laughs> from a singular piece of music that will never be replicated because the composer wrote one piece in his life. This yeah. was it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's kind of like his his requiem, essentially. Like, um, yeah, it, it's, it's very singular, I, very unique. I'm I'm a hundred percent on board with what Nathan is saying too. Like, it's one of the things that I, I love so much about it is the way this 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 piece, the cloud Atlas sextet is, is a gorgeous piece of music. And it even does the same thing with the music that it does with the characters where it is transforming throughout each story where, you know, you hear it played, you hear them working on it throughout the Frobisher story. Mm-hmm. And then Louisa Ray goes and listens to it in the record store where Ben Wishaw plays the record store guy. And, <laughs> and then it like, it's like a piece of music in the, uh, in the Timothy Cavendish story i believe like you hear it playing in the background in the in the home that he's in which also is the home that he is confined to in when he plays vivian airs it's the same exact home uh that that he's in in that second story that he's in in the fourth story he's just confined to it in both of them which i think is so great um that jim broadbent's in so um yeah it's it's so good and and I think it's also like a great metaphor for the way this film adapts itself. Like the book feels like a great composition, like a great written thing that you can look at and see like, this is going to be a beautiful piece of music. And the Wachowskis and Tick were just orchestrated it so beautifully. Like it is, they're separate, but also like, I love the way that they're in conversation with one another. Um, it's that's that's what i look for in an adaptation like i i hate it when something just it it always drives me crazy when people talk about like oh yeah well you just need to take the book and just make the movie exactly like the book you know you can't change anything (laughs) oh my god i can't believe the vw bug isn't orange like in the book you know like (laughs) that shit drives me crazy because it's totally missing the point and this is like we will do in conversations expanding and enhancing the the source material we will do a full episode uh and we have already talked about this uh the off episode but we are eventually going to do an episode entirely focusing on that discussion of uh yeah. adaptations from book to, to movie but because we do eventually have that planned uh we we will get there so let's get back into some of those themes uh eric i forget exactly what you were saying but hopefully this will transition back into where you're going since you were talking about uh jim broadbent and uh and and that uh, storyline and like how he's in the same house that you know how he's trapped there one of the things that i love about his uh the cavendish storyline is you know like it's showing the modern oppression of old people like this entire movie it, it's kind of focusing on people that are oppressed are seen as less than people either because yeah. of you know like colonial slavery or because of uh, societal constructs of um you know like homosexuality or because of mm. you know like in the future with them being literally fabricated and not quote-unquote real people 
And so right, that's yeah. one of the things that I find so fascinating about the the Cavendish story is the people that are oppressed and the people that are seen as not real people are just old. And yeah. there's something so something so fascinating about that. Maybe it's because uh, we, we did a review of Amusement Park, you know, only a few short months mm. ago. But it felt very Amusement Park-y in terms of, you know, like Jim Broadbent. He's just trying to run away from his problems. And his brother, spoilers, is like, yeah, I'm locking you away in a home because you slept with my wife. Which it's like, yeah, it makes you think it's one kind of story where he's going to be like chased by the mob, and then all of a sudden it's a totally different story where he's trapped in a nursing home. Well, and also it paints him to be just a despicable person. Like Jim Broadbent is not a good person playing, or he's not a good character. Jim Broadbent, I think, is just a treasure. The character that he plays in the Cavendish story yeah. is not a good person, but that doesn't mean that he should have all of his rights stripped away and you know like not mm. be treated as a person because the reason that he's not being treated as a person is not because of what he's done it is literally because he's old and so i i love yeah. that dichotomy and how it's presented of we as audience know he probably should be in jail he probably should be locked up but not just because he's old uh, all right. Yeah. So walking up for the right reasons. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, not not a, not in violation of the Anti-Incarceration Act. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. No, I'm I'm 100 with you. Um, that's that's the other thing too is like so much of this movie, like to kind of tie it back in. Like we talked about how it's so much about like prejudice, and I love the way that like every single thing is it's always tying it back to something systemic, like. It's like, yes, racism is a thing that exists, but the reason why racism persists to this day is because at some point, white people decided that black people were beneath them and were literally made to serve them. Mm -hmm. And it's all about like how we oppress others for the benefit of corporations or capitalism or whatever, you know, like to the point where it goes all the way up to the point where they're literally manufacturing people for fucking fast food chains so that way you can have cheap labor mm -hmm. that you then recycle and feed back into your labor. So it's like a constant, mm -hmm. you know, you're you're minimizing your uh, fucking expenditures or whatever the terminology is. And yeah. and yeah, it's all about how we turn bodies into fucking product. The weaker um, meat and the strong got to eat. Exactly. Yeah. And And again, it's like whether it's racism or sexism or ageism, like all of it can be traced back to some other larger big issue that needs to be confronted or it will never go away. I think it's, it's just, it's, it's so smart because again, so much of the, so many of these kind of like dramas that are like hand wringing about race or whatever is always like, yeah, why can't we just get along and treat each other nicely? And this movie does that to a certain extent. Like the overriding theme is basically just like, yeah, one act of kindness can have this great, domino effect or whatever but at the same time it's also like yeah it's one act of kindness but it also requires other people to take the lead and and make the difficult choice to fight back to break those conventions well and that's something that i was thinking of um with one of our a multitude um, of drops right and that's one of the things that i was thinking of with one of the <laughs> points that we brought up earlier when you said you know what if i was born at a different time or a different place and it's very easy for us 
like now in in modern times to say slavery is bad because slavery is bad and so like you know we we all i think could very easily say like oh yeah if i lived back in colonial times i would totally be an abolitionist fighting for freedom you know like of course i'd be doing the right thing because we have the benefit of looking at like that was bad but how many of the people that are like yeah slavery was bad are doing the things now to stand up to the current systems of oppression mm-hmm. and it, it's it's kind of like all the people who use who like love to quote Martin Luther King when it's like yeah we all just need to get along blah 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 and it's like if you were born just like 20 years earlier you would probably be one of those people who who hated martin luther king you know like he was a radical figure and we don't some people don't even realize just how he was i mean he was one of those revolutionary figures but we look at it as as a uh he he kind of he he alludes to that very well uh when wishaw first pulls the gun on him and he's like you want to pull the trigger but your kind never does exactly yeah Mm -hmm. um so it's yeah it's really like can you make that difficult choice that's going to make that change? And even in that moment, uh, Wishhouse character doesn't do it so much purposefully. It's an accidental thing. Mm. He doesn't mean to kill him at that. Mo- I mean, he kind of wants to, but I don't think I don't know if he would have had that struggle and not ensued. Well, and yeah. um, that that leads to a, like a really interesting uh, thing that uh, we don't have time to talk about, but. The fact that Broadman is like you, you don't have the guts to pull the trigger, and then later he has the guts to pull the trigger, and the impact that that has across the rest mm. of you know the future, it there there are so many little pieces of this movie that could be the thesis of like entire doctoral uh, works because yeah. oh, of yeah. how far reaching they are with with just the tiniest of things. And and again, like that's one of the things that I really appreciate and respect about Cloud Atlas is because it is telling all of these different stories across all of time and, and you're seeing the same arc, different details, but you're seeing the same arc. You have some of that uh, like benefit of hindsight of like, oh, yes, of course, slavery is bad. But then like when it shows uh, the modern stuff with putting old people in a home and uh and and there's that little line of like oh yes your mother has fallen and they're just like eh, whatever she said something about the last will and like that's what gets them to get up and go and like it's talking yeah, about yeah. there's yeah. there's so much money to be made from you know putting old people away i can't remember what the exact phrase of that one is yeah and but so when yeah, his brother yeah. makes that call and he's like i'm i've been doing this i've been invested in this company for decades and it's made me <laughs> filthy rich yeah, and yeah. He can how... incarcerate his brother, and also again, all of the all of the bad things that humans do to each other is always motivated by greed or profit or something. Like even like in the well, name it anyway. That's I don't want yeah. to get into what the the the, uh, uh, the the uh, well, I was about to say the Halle Berry one. The Halle Berry one. Them. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, the seventies yeah, one. Ray story. It's even though it's just all in the background. It's all about consumers are expendable. We want all of these people to die, or not we want to. We don't care how many people die from a nuclear explosion and fallout as long as the oil companies get rich. Like, even though yeah. you don't have the, uh, it, it's not as in your face, 
and 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 again, like it's all in the background. It's all things happening off screen. It still has that system of oppression, but the people being oppressed are essentially everyone consumers oppressed by big business. And if you remember, what is Somni's first catechism? Honor thy Honor consumer. Thy consumer. <laughs> so yeah. it's like that's what I mean. That's you know the proletariat versus you know the bourgeois right there. It's mm-hmm. that's what leads the revolution once again. It's. You know, that's their version of the fight for 15. You know, this, you know, you know, who actually runs the system. It's you, you know, honor yourself by honoring this. Yeah. Because those with power wouldn't, would come to a grinding halt if you stopped showing up. Yep. Yeah. Um, But, and and I like to how I, I just because we haven't talked very much about the very last story, the post-apocalyptic one. Well, let, I, I, just let, say, let me... I like the way that that is such an it is an inverse of everything where it's like at the beginning of the story, you've got like the white people coming in to I guess are they're like they're aboriginals, right? They're in New Ze- Is it New Zealand? That they're where? In? Who? When? What? They're, they're like they're, the I think they keep saying they're Maori. So Maori. Yeah, that's what it is. That's yeah, right. That'd be um, I love the inverse of like at the beginning of the movie, it's jim sturgis and tom hanks coming in and you have halle berry as like the tribal character and then the end of the movie they flip it where it's like tom hanks is part of the tribe who's having to mm-hmm. like face off against these cannibals and then halle berry is coming in and they see her as this interloper but they learn that like no it's they're actually here because they're trying to find um they're here because the people in power uh have lost their power and now they are oppressed by just Death. Exactly, because they're dying. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. And and the I love the idea that like Tom Hanks is the only like if Tom Hanks like gives in to Georgie and like kills her or whatever, then he stops any chance of like hope for the future. That they there's no way they would get and like they literally have to go off world, which is kind of maybe not the most uh, optimistic thing in the world. But I do love the idea that it's like no. We have humanity has reset, and this is our chance to make it right. And that they do take that chance, despite the fact that it's difficult and it does require a lot of bloodshed. God, Um, there's there are more things that I want to talk about with that final story and how like it is supposed to be a lot more heartwarming and it is supposed to be like, yay, Tom Hanks is finally you know like rising to the occasion. Even though, again, it's the people in power are just like, uh, fine, I guess we'll come over here because I need you to help me with this other thing. Fine. But anyways. Um, and I results think, in the slaughter of his entire tribe except for, you know, his, his niece. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think that it would be fascinating because, again, like there's so many themes that we've picked out and so much of the like one small drop is enough to have, you know, like just long reaching impacts from the oppressed to revolution. I think that it would be fascinating to go back and rewatch this movie from the perspective of how are the decisions of the people in power having those same ripple effects? Because it's it's the same thing. The, the people in power and the oppressed are each making decisions and the decisions that they're making are impacting the next generation. And mm. Because, again, people in power are staying in power. And so, yes, there keeps being revolution, but more people keep dying because of the people in power oppressing. I just think that it would be really fascinating to go back and watch it mm, through that lens. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good transition to into our last little main point here before we get into does everything actually work, which is 
the whole movie is about all these like micro revolutions that kind of lead into one another and affect reverberate or whatever. And what I love about this movie, maybe the thing I love the most is all of these generations pass the torch down through art. Mm-hmm. Um, and so art kind of our last one is like, do what I said art slash story. Like the entire movie starts right, with story, Tom Hanks yeah. around a campfire. It's yeah. to Tom Hanks around a campfire telling him this, telling his, his grandchildren, this story, the uh, Journal of Adam Ewing is something that Robert Frobisher finds and reads about. You know, he has his great line, which is another of the film's mission statements, where it's like a half-finished book is a half-finished love affair. A half-finished revolution is doomed to fail, you know, to a certain extent. And then you get his letters that Louisa reads, and then there's a book about her story that is edited by... Um, by Timothy Cavendish, and then a movie is made about his story, which then inspires the revolution for Son Mi, and then Son Mi becomes a literal deity to <laughs> Tom Hanks's character. Like it is through a book. Like again, it is always passed down through art, through stories. Um, and I just think that's it's so brilliant. Like stories are the essential connective tissue between all of humanity. I, again, it just kind of demonstrates the reason why we do any of like what the reason why we are all sitting here is because of how much we love stories and how much it connects us to one another and how we can dive into these bigger themes and understand each other. I mean, it's how humans understand each other again. Like it's it's so beautiful. And so like for a movie that's so complex, it's actually a pretty simple like way to hand off one story to the other. Hmm. Absolutely. And, um, and again, like that also just tracks with history, you know, like, yeah, th- there's so much of society centered around art. I mean, you know, the cavemen times they did cave paintings. Why? Mm. I'd like to think because they were bored. Um, but, you know, like there was information being passed on. And that information guided how the next generation was to do things. It it was, it was essentially an instructional manual that they were writing for how to get food, go find the big hairy thing, stab it with pointy thing, eat, (laughs) repeat. Yeah. (laughs) And what's great about it too, is a lot of times like these, none of these stories are ever made with like, it's never intentional. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, I mean, other than Son Me to a certain extent, you know, she is trying to get a message out. But ultimately her, you know, she wanted to make her voice heard as long, you know, her whole thing is like, as long as one person hears it, then then it's out. Then it, I've done, I've accomplished my mission. But she doesn't accomplish it in the way that she expects. You know, like it is, she, she wanted to communicate her message to someone, but it ends up, ha- the effect that she has is not how she intended it. All right, we've been talking for a very long time, and as much as I want to continue talking, we really need to wrap this up. So our our last of the main topics is, did it work? All of these themes that we've been discussing, all of these amazing technical accomplishments, did, um, did this film achieve what it was trying to do? And to start this conversation... I want to read the summary that I had written up as a um, as a backup in case Eric did not get his summary slash recommendation for the beginning. So much in the same way that this movie is bookended uh, by themes, we're going to bookend this episode with um, with some not necessarily themes, but uh, style structure, whatever. All right. So 
A technically ambitious and thematically heavy film that's as divisive as it is interesting. Its disjointed narrative excels at showing the systemic issues of oppression that are seemingly ever-present, but potentially at the expense of a strong connection to the characters outside of just a couple of the stories. And while the gimmick of the same actors playing multiple roles adds to the logistical wonder-slash-nightmare of how the film was made, it results in a false sense of cohesion across the timelines. Not to mention some of the questionable, at best, makeup decisions, which we spent a lot of time talking about. This is a film that is not as easily agreed upon for a recommendation. It is equally as true to say, despite some of these shortcomings, the technical accomplishments and deeply thematic relevance result in a truly emotional experience. As it is to say, despite the vitally important themes that are very worthy of discussion and tremendous amount of respect for how the film was made, the flaws, though relatively minor, will continually drag you out of the movie and keep you from being as fully immersed as you should be. So, does this film work? Eric, what do you think? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I feel like uh, most of what I've been saying is is evidence that I think it works. I I I, I love this movie. I I honestly think that it is just it works so well that it doesn't seem possible to me that like it, it is. I still can't quite wrap my brain around the fact that somebody made this movie and managed to tie all of these things in together and have it fit together so well you know what i mean like it's it has all of these different threads and so much of this is like it just feels like it's a disaster it's going to be a disaster and and it's beautiful like i find this movie so moving and so powerful and it's the kind of movie that i feel like i will get something new out of it every single time i watch it you know we've been digging into all of these themes but at the end of the day i think that this is just a great story like it's six great stories all of them are good i don't think like i mentioned the timothy cavendish one is the weakest but even that one i love like it's so good it's so funny it just feels a little bit like an outlier i think and it um i don't know man i don't even know how to answer this question it's too big of a question like <laughs> all i right, just think that it, it fucking works for me it's and, and honestly i think it works because so much of it is pitched at an emotional level like it is all about these characters finding connection in one another and finding solace in one another and it's just a plea for kindness like it's just do nice things and even if you it's just do nice things because it is a good thing to do and you know what even if it doesn't give you any kind of immediate gratification or satisfaction you don't like who knows what it could mean for future for the future you know like mm-hmm. that is just such a it seems so obvious and so simple, but like this movie, I love that this movie is so big and complicated because like as obvious as that whole like, and you know, kind of corny to a certain extent, like what is an ocean, but a multitude of drops. Like when he says that, like I almost started crying because it's like, it's just after seeing all of this stuff happen to you, like it just hits so hard when he says that. But like, I, I don't know. I love this movie. I think it's beautiful. I adore it. I think it works beautifully i understand why it wouldn't have worked for some people because again it is so singular and kind of bizarre and there are a lot of things in it that could easily be you know like the makeup we talked about i I can see how they could take somebody out of the experience but as we said i love this movie warts and all i love how messy it is i love how ambitious it is and i also don't think it's nearly as messy as i thought it was the first time around fair enough Um, all right i'm gonna let somebody else talk damn (laughs) Do you think this movie I, works? I don't think it. I, I honestly don't think it's a mess at all. I think it is 
these six stories so well that you know usually if you watch a film that's an anthology film there's always segments that i'm like i'm yeah. gonna skip past that next time i watch it mm-hmm. and the way they construct it is just, you, you can't there's nothing in this film you can skip past and honestly there's nothing i would want to because again we do things we do this this podcast because we're movie fans this film has everything i love as a movie fan there's historical epics there's that 70s conspiracy theory film there's you know the the plucky british film that you never get to see but it's always nominated for an academy award (laughs) um there's there's you know the the cool sci-fi film there's the post-apocalyptic film Mm -hmm. and and there's Tom fucking Hanks in it. And there's Tom fucking Hanks in every fucking story. <laughs> and yeah, this is six great Tom Hanks performances rolled into one, even if some of the performances are much, much, much smaller. Um, That's so good. Him, him, as Cavendish, his, him as Cavendish was awesome. <laughs> oh my God, it's so good. Also, so much, just, you, you know, Jim Broadbent's probably like, Tom Hanks play me again. That was kind of cool. <laughs> next time, yeah, I like the idea that next time Jim Broadbent casts in a movie, he's like, uh, "Tom, you got this, right? Go on." Yeah, yeah, just do me. It's all right. He could be his, he could um, be his stunt double. And this film, despite all of its, you know, there's some heavy stuff that goes on in this movie. I couldn't help but smile constantly because it would just do something really small and really cool, and I'm like. Only movies can do this. Only movies can pull this off the way that this did. Because all the pistons were firing. You know, the the Mm -hmm. cinematography, gorgeous. The music, amazing. I posted it on our um, Discord. So I'm like, damn, I wonder if there's like a soundtrack available. Of course there is. And the vinyl will cost you like $800 because it's incredibly rare. Yeah, I read um, that. They did like a limited <laughs> run of them. Be- because that yeah. totally fits with the theme of the movie. Just like, hey, this thing that's all about, you know, like not letting uh, corporations yeah. oppress you. We're going to do <laughs> a limited run so that we can make a but lot if, of money from it. if you remember, it. though, it's accurate because in the film, only like eight of this, only eight of these albums existed. You know? I'm, yeah. I'm just saying. It was saying. an incredibly rare album that she found. I'm uh, just saying. I'm just saying, uh, it kind of it, goes against the theme yeah. of the movie. They could have just like put it up well, on SoundCloud. Well, I'm sure there's a more. I'm sure there's like a, you know, you can if you if the masses want it, you can probably go to Spotify. I was gonna say there's probably not a big want. there's probably not a big demand for it because this movie again is underseen and undervalued. Yes. Uh, like that's the whole point. Like why we want people to see this. Mm. Give us a reprint what? of the Cloud Atlas vinyl. Yeah, um, I uh, I read a Variety review of this film, and they expected this film to be huge. Yeah, they thought this film was going to be a cultural like bombshell. So like, like everyone watch this. I kept I kept thinking like while watching this movie, it's like this had to be an independent movie because no studio would have ever spent a hundred million dollars on this, and that is such a shame that mm-hmm. all of the movies that are made for a hundred million dollars are like you know they have to be superhero movies or they have to be yeah. sequels to movies that did not initially cost hundred a hundred million dollars but ended up being huge hits. You Which know, is funny and, because I'm, I'm not going to say it now, but one of the movies that I would recommend was a film that was going to be a hundred dollar, hundred million dollar film, but because studios wouldn't agree, it ended up being like a twelve million dollar film. Yeah. So, um, Nathan, does it actually work for you? 
I would say that, uh, I mean, you kind of said uh, there are things about it that didn't work for you. Here, here's the thing. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's a shame that we are, you know, an hour and a half into this rather than starting off with this in terms of, you know, making the podcast feisty tonight. I don't know if this movie works for me or not. And here's why. Everything that we've just been talking about for the last hour and a half, I fully agree with. All of the stuff that I was mm. saying about like how great this movie handles all of these themes. I'm in it. Like that's what I love about this movie. The fact that this movie plays out like a, an orchestral piece. I love that. There's so much about this movie that it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. The fact that they did have all of these uh, actors playing wildly different characters in a way that still works and tells you this cohesive story across multiple timelines where you don't have to have the complete story because you get a different piece of the puzzle from a different timeline. All of these things work and I love it. It's also true that there were a couple of things that were done and, and I, I should probably preface with this. Both of you know how much I overanalyze everything. I have a Wait, hard what? time. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it is difficult for me to not look at things with an incredibly critical eye. And despite the fact that I love some trash movies because I overanalyze the trashiness and find the, uh, you know, the great piece of art within them. I also sometimes have a harder time with things that are supposed to be high art, not finding some of the, well, wait, this is dumb. And so, and so here's the thing with Cloud Atlas for me. Everything that I've been saying is the true true. And this movie is <laughs> fucking amazing. And I cannot wait to watch it again. And I have a feeling that each time I watch this movie, I'm only going to draw more out of it. I'm only going to find more to love. And, and again, like a lot of the technical accomplishments, not, not even talking about like some of the like actual technology and in, in terms of, you know, like how it was made and, um, you know, like cinematography and all that stuff, but like just the pure scheduling of it and how they got this film to work. All of this stuff. I love. So, so here's the thing. And, and I feel like it's really important for me to keep emphasizing how much I do do legitimately love about this movie and like i said at the very beginning with my prior information why i'm glad that cloud atlas was my starting point for reevaluating the wachowski films because i feel like this is such a a perfect piece of like oh my god this is amazing with some flaws the flaws and and, and again i said this uh, in in that quick summary that i had even though some of these flaws are minor in the grand scheme of things and some people for instance both of you from everything that we've been talking about can easily overlook them for me it was more difficult and and there's uh, there's one quote-unquote big one in the sense that it was the thing that probably took me out of it the most but again it's such a minor detail all of my issues basically revolve around uh, that shooting star birthmark. One of the issues, and this, oh, is, this is not my main point. This is just a side point revolving around it. Uh, I find it endlessly fascinating that this movie has so 
so much to say about systemic oppression and so much to say about how, you know, like one person can make a difference and so much to say about, uh, like both of you have been talking about, about kindness and about compassion and about overthrowing these systems of power. Yet the only people that are actually making the difference within the context of the story of what the audience sees are the very, very, very special people that have a birthmark showing how special they are. Again, it's very minor. The, I don't think that's the, true at all. The birthmark is more leftover mm. from the book, though, because the birthmark is how you make the connections more easily known in the book. And that's fine. Because there, there, because there's no, there's not the visual cues or the musical cues in the book. It's it's the birthmark where you where you're like, oh. I don't necessarily okay. think that's that's true though, because like the the mm. like there are plenty of other characters in the story who are affecting change. Like with without is without, one of without, the most pivotal characters in the film, without, and he doesn't have the birthmark ever. But without the characters who have the birthmark none of these other things would have happened. Like they, they are the crux of they, they are the pivotal points in history. They are the people that, that have the impact on what happens next without those special people with the star birthmark. It wouldn't happen. And, and again, it's such a minor thing, but outside of the fact that again i jokingly say that only the special people who are specially marked can have uh, an an impact on on history also um that also relates to the bigger issue of the movie it it, it, it toys with reincarnation you know it toys with like these are these souls that keep coming back and keep having an impact you know and and we talked about that and some of the things that it does great with that, you know, like uh, you mentioned Tom Hanks's arc where he goes from villain to hero and like you're following essentially this soul who keeps getting it wrong as he's trying to get it right. Uh, and the, the uh, version of him from the seventies that dies in the airplane, then the next version of him is like, all right, fine. Well, I'm just going to buck the system then and throw a dude off a balcony. Like there's a lot of stuff that I think is done really well. And, and I like that. And, Again, everything that we've been saying, I agree with. I've not been lying through this episode. I agree with everything that we've been saying. It's also true that it's also true that I feel like they kind of straddled a line that I don't know how well it worked and I wish that they had gone one direction or the other. In the sense that this movie would not have been different at all if you just drop the birthmark and some of that reincarnation aspect and it is just things playing out throughout history and maybe there's like some quasi cosmic things sort of drawing these people together fine whatever but like they almost toy with uh, again like tom hanks and halle berry of like they are destined to be together it's like mm-hmm. fine and this plays back into one of your uh, earlier points of fate versus free will. If they were destined to be together, does that drop in the ocean actually matter if fate is just going to eventually bring them together anyways? Like, does it matter? Yeah. Like, are you getting what I'm saying in terms of of, like why that bugs me? I, I kind of like the idea that there is some sort of cosmic force, that there is like 
shift in like there may be something else out there. I mean, there are certain things in the film that are kind of it hints at the supernatural, like Susan Sarandon uh, in the last story is like this kind of seer and and also like I, I don't know, I like the idea that it I, is that there may be some other kind of cosmic force sort of pushing them in the right direction, but ultimately these characters still have to make that choice. Again, I don't have an you know issue I mean? like, with some of the cosmic stuff and I don't have an issue with uh, you know, like fate is doing one thing but you still have to make your decision to act on it. Like all of that's fine. My issue with the film is either drop some of like this reincarnation, these souls are destined to be together and they always will be together and just mm. focus on like some of the systemic issues and uh, some of the, you know, one drop in an ocean and all of that stuff or drop some of the stories, drop some of the, the branching uh, characters and just focus on like one or two central love stories. And I'm not saying that this should have been a romance and been like the fountain or, um, or the notebook or something like that, where it's all about love. And I'm not saying that what I'm saying is Maybe it's about love. Though. And yes, it is. But you know what I'm saying? Like this shouldn't have been like a hallmark just, Oh, we, our souls were destined to be together since the end, since the ages of time. No, that, mm. that would have been a dumb movie and I wouldn't have cared about any of it. I love these bigger themes. I think that that is what makes this movie. But because it has some of the, so for instance, with uh, Jim Broadbent and uh, did you say, say that it was Sturgis that was playing his brother's wife and also, uh, what's his name? So no, like, it was uh, Ben Mishnah. Yeah. So sure. so like with he's that, so with with that piece of um, when he's Farbisher and working under Jim Broadbent and he ends up sleeping with his wife. And then like in the next timeline, he is uh, his, Jim Broadbent's brother's wife. And like with some of these things, there's that potential for like, all right, and they have the, the, yeah, the decision that this person makes is having like this cosmic impact on their life. And that's fine. That is a good story. And I like that. But to mm. me, that detracts from everything else that we've been saying about these bigger themes and about our role in history and about why we do the things that we do and about us being this drop in this ocean. If it's just, well, it doesn't matter what I do because the next version of me is just going to be doing it again. And I, I don't know some, and again, it is such, well, that's a, why I, that's it's kind such of why I want to talk about fate versus free will. I like that the movie makes those suggestions and that it kind of makes you stop and think about like, Again, am am I really in control? And I think the movie is arguing that yes, you have the ability to make these decisions, but are you going to? Sure, but then you Whether also the have universe to go... is steering you into those directions or not. Like you ultimately you... have to pull the trigger. Sure, oh, that was a bad. But you... you have to do what you can't not do. Right. You ha exactly. But <laughs> but then you yeah. also have Hugo Weaving that is just eternally evil throughout all of the stories and, yeah. mm -hmm. and the, the thing that bugs me about that is I feel like some of that stuff detracts from the bigger themes and it here, here's here's maybe hopefully, but, that, but he's representative of like these these things that are eternal 
Right. Yes. There, he, there, there are always the these point. apparent. Like, the there point. are always going to be people who that is the point. Though these there, but that's the point. There are always going to be people upholding the perceived natural order of things. There's always going to be the people siding with evil. There's always going to be the people trying to enforce the oppressors rather than trying to side with the oppressed. Of course, and yes, Hugo Weaving's character is representative of that. The thing that bugs me is to then have the, yes, but here's this reincarnation aspect where it is just his damned soul throughout all of time siding with the oppressors. To me, it takes it away from this person is representing this trope of history of there's always going to be someone enforcing the uh, oppressors and turns it into this character is just a fucking asshole. Like it to me, and I'm not saying for everyone. And again, huh. Dan gave it a five star. I think you gave it a, a four or a four and a half star rating. So I think that for I both of you, this issue doesn't matter. But for me, it did for me, that aspect, the, the reincarnated aspect. And, and it's not even like an issue with reincarnation. It, if that had been the focus of the movie, all right, cool. I have no problem with that whatsoever. Because of the way that the themes are being addressed, I feel like some of these other elements, and like Dan said, they might just be carryovers from the book. I feel like they detract, and not even if I feel, for me, they detracted me from it a little bit. Mm. Enough so that when I was watching it, and, and, and again, maybe it's just because like I kept trying to figure out the puzzle, and I kept trying to figure out all right, so what's the deal with the birthmark? And if it's just, uh, it's, it's nothing. It is, it is literally just a thing. But because it was there and they focused on it and it was important. And like, even at one point they say something about like uh, Tom Hanks's uh, character earning his star. I think it's like, wait, what the fuck does that even matter? Does the birthmark matter or not? And I'm fine with movies having unanswered questions. I'm fine with all of that. Like it, it's not a, everything must be perfectly explained. It's a, if that matters, if some of this, no, this is fate. If that stuff matters, I feel like that lessens the message of all of these other themes that we've just been talking about that make this movie so amazing. And if it, doesn't matter that could have been trimmed and you wouldn't have noticed if, if they didn't, if they just got rid of the birthmark and dropped a couple little things, I guarantee you that neither of you would be saying, you know what? I felt like this movie was lacking. I, I think that this is why my feelings on this movie are so complicated is because these are minor issues that shouldn't bug me as much as they do, uh-huh. but they took me enough out of the movie that all of the times uh-huh. that I should have been so much more emotionally invested. I was saying what that. Hmm. All right. So Eric, so what, you what is, talked what is about your how this movie is a piece of music and one of the uh, pieces of advice that is given in the movie about like trying to work out the music is the minute you stop trying to find it, it'll find you. I think that is something you have to again I like I think this movie works best as much as I love digging into all this and stuff 
Like, I think this movie works best if you don't try to figure it out and you just let, you just absorb it. You just let it yep. happen to you. You just experience Absolutely it. It's agree. such an experiential thing that all of those things, whether you process them unconsciously or you're thinking about it the whole time or whatever it is, like, I think if you just stop trying to find it, just let the movie wash over you. That is how it works best. I, All these other little details, you just kind of like per, let them percolate and you can kind of find it later on after the movie is over. I, like once. I absolutely agree. And and I, I said something similar to that at the beginning of like, if you just experience this movie, it will draw you in and it will get you by the emotions and turn on your yeah. brain. So many of the things that we've talked about are not things I was actively thinking about while watching the movie there are things that did not really even occur to me until afterward when it was just rattling around in my brain oh man so many of these things are things that i was actively thinking about and that's the thing is because there are people like me who are going to watch this movie and agree with all of the stuff but also it's like all right so is this supposed to be some sort of time loop story is this supposed to be some sort of reincarnative story is this just supposed to be Tom Hanks in the future telling a story to his grandkids? And so, of course, all of the characters are the same because he's just, you know, making up the same people over and over. Like, is he just telling mm. the story throughout history? Any of these explanations can work. And I'm not saying that there needs to be a definitive answer. Yeah. What I am saying is for me, with all of these themes and emotions in play, because there are some of these little tiny like, hey, here's a mystery. For me, it took me just enough out of the emotion because you gave me a mystery. Every, uh, everything you're saying is exactly why I love that it is so complex. Adds all the stuff in there because it gives you so much to chew on. There's so many things that you can take out of it. And and again, I think if you rewatch the movie, that will really help you to kind of. It's such a big meal of a film that it's hard to digest in one sitting. I want so to good. love this movie. There is so much to love about this movie. It is insane that it exists. It is such a technical feat. There is so much to love about it. For me and for people like me, there's also just enough that it drew me out of it. it, it it's the same as... Um, uh, it, it, it's like I've talked about with like found footage movies or uh, like 3D movies, things that are supposed to draw you even more into the story. To me, they end up just taking me out of it. And so that's part of what this did is even though reusing the same characters is part of what was supposed to draw me more into the story. And on most of the levels, it did. Ah, there yeah. were times that it took me out of it. Part of those times were in Neo Soul with every single person that wasn't soon me. I was just like, oh my God, oh, this looks terrible and I hate it. Like, it was little things Fair. like that that took me out of it. And I, I, I don't know, guys. I, I think I love it. I, I definitely recommend <laughs> it. <laughs> there was a part of me that was hope again, like, it's, it totally is a, uh, like shows you why this movie is so polarizing. It is like it's depending on who you are and how you watch it and the way that you interpret it can be. It can be a lot. It could be. It's hard to know where you stand on it. I, I totally see that. Well, and this is yeah. also why I our... hate it. I was totally expecting you to oh, hate the movie no. the way you were building this up. I thought you were going to be like <laughs> this movie. 
I mean, also, no, this is also why, like, Cloud Atlas is a perfect example of why we approach movies the way that we do from multiple aspects. From a technical standpoint, Cloud Atlas is amazing. From a thematic and emotional uh, standpoint, Cloud Atlas is I, I, I'm almost at a loss for words at how many themes it approaches and how effective it is at drawing you in so emotionally, especially with how disjointed the stories are. So, yeah, from a technical standpoint, mm. amazing. From an uh, thematic standpoint, amazing. From an emotional standpoint, amazing. Is this a perfect movie? Absolutely not, because here are some of these issues that also took me out of it. And like, that's also why this movie is difficult to rate, and that's also why I hate the fact that Letterboxd gives you a like or not, and like that's it. Yes, I know I can use the star ratings, but we've already talked about how that's tricky. I wish that there was like a, a variety of things because it's like I didn't not love this movie. <laughs> like your, but <laughs> uh, do the, What was the? What's the quote? I can't ever. I can't get it right. You have to do, do whatever the, you can't not do. <laughs> yeah, you have to do whatever you can't not do. Yeah, it's, I, it's such I, a perfect paradigm. <laughs> again, every, so many lines of this movie just perfectly sum up this movie. I all it's trying to do. I feel about this movie. You have to like what you can't not like. I was about to say I feel about this movie what I can't not feel. Um, It's just I just exactly. Yeah, Uh, and and again, um, that is why my summary I feel like is a perfect encapsulation of this movie. Of it is absolutely amazing and -hmm. also flawed, and I think that people are going to fall on one of those two sides. And the, the things that are flawed about this movie are not the things that I thought would be flawed about it. Um, yeah. And, and I think that f- once people actually watch it, they're going to either be on the side of these shortcomings don't yeah. matter because of how amazing the movie is, or despite how amazing the movie is, it feels like they're trying to do too much and just overcomplicating things for the sake of overcomplicating and again, some of that might also pull from people's perceptions I guess of I, the Matrix uh, uh, yeah. sequels. <laughs> I yeah, guess again, I get I'll that. Show but it's, the end of Matrix too, to if they want to see overly yeah. <laughs> complicated and pretentious. Here's this one scene. Uh, it's so funny because, like, I, I get why someone would call this movie pretentious, but like when you watch the act of watching this movie, like you watch it, and there's it's so sincere in in things that like most people would find kind of cheesy or whatever, and it also has so many things in it that are just it's like extreme violence at times that is almost cartoonish and it also has like a scene that feels like it comes straight out of there's something about mary whenever you have the flashback of jim broadbent's character ha- like trying to have sex with the younger version of susan sarandon and her parents walk in and he grabs the cat and puts it over his crotch and the cat scratches him and he falls out of a window it is an it is wild Scene like that can exist in a movie that also is about like how it, where it also shows like clones in a production facility that are like being ground up to be turned into like soap, as they say, to feed to. I don't know. It's just crazy that that scene can exist and not feel incongruous in a movie like this. Which is why I could never think of this movie as pretentious because it is so just achingly well, and. And I think that that just might be part of why, aside from the fact that I just I absolutely know. adore Jim Broadbent, I think that that might be part of why um, the the Cavendish story is my favorite because it feels like 
it, it feels like it is the least connected. And so it feels like it has the yeah. least amount of like, oh, here's this reincarnated thing. And this person is that person. And this is this. And this, even though those elements are there, you know, even though, uh, uh, what's his name is uh, Bernadette like, or Georgette, whatever, mm. even though it's there, it's also super. There's no actual this. direct connection between the stories. Yeah. Like you said, like, right now the things that happen there then have an uh, impact later on, be, you know, like we've already been talking about, but yeah. it is the most, it, to me, it is the story that is the most representative of how this movie could with very slight changes for me have been an even stronger film by playing up the recurrence of themes and by playing up the recurrence of how these themes are playing out without relying on the, and here is also maybe they're reincarnated and the same people and you're going through the same story because you didn't get it right the first time, (laughs) which to me, again, I, I feel like, I feel like that detracts from the themes. But that's just my perspective. Really? All right. Uh, how are we watchable? <laughs> do you guys think uh, Cloud Atlas is? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be, I, I kind of want to be watching it right now. Honestly. Yeah. I think it's highly rewatchable, but I don't think it's one that I can rewatch all that often. This one I think is going to need time before I rewatch it again. Mm-hmm. Just because it, it, it is a, three hours. It is a commitment. And it's one that I... Like I watched this in three hour long segments because yeah. after each, I knew this wasn't something I wanted to try to squeeze in before bed as I started getting more tired. Um, so I wanted to be able to give it my full attention. And it's something that I wanted to kind of sit and think about in between each viewing almost. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the, I, this isn't just something I'm going to pick up on a whim and go, Oh yeah, I'm going to rewatch that tonight. It's like mm-hmm. something I'm I'm gonna have to probably plan for, you know. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. But I also like as soon as the movie ended when I watched it, I was like, I really w- wish that I had enough time to rewatch it again before we do the podcast because again, it's so it's so rich, it's so complex, it's so just there's so much you can like dig into more so than most movies. I want to rewatch this very soon and not just rewatch this, but also revisit a lot of the Wachowski's other stuff. Um, j- yeah. Just because again, like there's just, I, I just, I love it. I don't know. That's it. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, I would rewatch this movie right now. Were I not tired? Also, I'd rather spend three hours watching an Emmerich film. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. That sounded, I didn't mean to, you know what? I want people to love what they love, but man, no, I think you bit. were right. <laughs> that, hurt, that hurt me a little bit. Uh, super quick. What are some of the movies that, uh, that you all would pair with this? Aronofsky's the fountain. It's thematically very, very similar. Um, no, I've never seen that. I, another film that like I mentioned it earlier. He had envisioned as a one hundred million dollar film, and it ended up getting trimmed back to like thirty five, because um, he had originally had like Brad Pitt and I think maybe Kate Blanchett in the leads, mm-hmm. uh, but the studio just wouldn't give him the money, so it just tumbled. Um, also, it got turned into a graphic novel, so it's also kind of got that similarity to it. And then uh, Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, I would also 
Yeah, that's a good pull. Airliness. I can't believe I didn't think of that. Which also made, which was made for like thirty million dollars, and also made only around like ten or twelve. Uh, so lesson learned: these movies only make back between a quarter and a third of their budget. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it kind of explains why studios don't really put a lot of money into them. Uh, yeah, why you have to like they're the not wrong to bench their bets to... on this, right? Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it is not hard. a good return on investment for studios. But you know, those are three damn good films that deserve to be out there. All right, Eric. What are some um, of your recommendations? One of the pairings I had were the Matrix sequels, specifically not the first one, but the second one and third one, because I feel like those movies are also super ambitious and also, but like they managed to get a studio to back them up on that one, which I think is kind of fascinating. They got to, like, I love it so much when artists get to paint on a huge canvas and they get to like run amok with hundreds of millions of dollars and do whatever the fuck they want. Well, they got uh, that really money. That very much. They got that money because of how well the Matrix did, and I'm pretty sure that they yeah, knew. Right, yeah. That, well, and I'm pretty sure that they knew that if they made the second and then waited to get money for the third, they weren't going to get the money. I'm pretty sure that they were oh, like, "Yeah, we need the money to go ahead and make two and three, and then made both of them, and then two came out, and then people were just like, uh, what? Absolutely, yeah. But I do think that like." I feel like if if you watch Cloud Atlas and see like what they're doing and how they kind of tread in some of the same themes that they touch on in the later, because you know the most people don't like the the sequels because the first one's such a tight like great action picture with like big philosophical ideas and all that good stuff, and then the second and third movies double down on the philosophy kind of angle of it and like all these like techno analogies and trying to like everything makes sense as like a computer program analogy all this other stuff so i don't know i feel like if you watch cloud and see how that how they do that then you can go back and watch the sequels and see what they're trying to do with those mm-hmm. movies and i feel like they'd be a little bit more effective um <clears throat> also 2001 a space odyssey just because it's also doing something sort of similar where it's telling multiple stories across time and space and it's equally ambitious and uh, and definitely pretentious and all that good stuff. And okay, okay, I hate the word pretentious. Come I, I don't on, like to, I don't, I, I don't, I don't use Dude, that word. Dude, we again, we talked about this. I think two thousand one is a masterpiece. I know a pretentious <laughs> masterpiece from a. <clears throat> so, uh, my pairings um, would be. Oh, I wasn't even done. Oh, fine. I thought you were done. You had like this long <laughs> pause. I thought you were done. No, no, no. Well, because you because you started talking. I, okay, I'm gonna skip a couple of them because they're whatever. The one that I really want to want to pair with that is my fun pairing kind of is Man with a Movie Camera, uh, which is this experimental uh, like Soviet film. I cannot remember when it was like in the 30s or something. Uh, that is basically all about. It's an experiment in editing. That's all about just juxtaposing different images together that like are. Um, ostensibly like unrelated, but it's like kind of putting them together for you to draw meaning from them. It's kind of like just. Um, Didn't we talk about that with our thirties episode? Like, we did. It was in our twenties episode, I think. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, it's a silent film, and it's just essentially, again, just an experiment in editing, and it's fascinating to see how you can infer meaning from juxtaposing all these different images together. And how the beast simultaneously means nothing and it means everything or, you know, means whatever you want it to mean. 
Um, I love that like Cloud Atlas is also an experiment in editing, trying to juxtapose things that are seemingly unrelated. And by putting them together, you draw new meaning from these individual stories that otherwise wouldn't necessarily make sense together. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, my pairings would be uh, being John Malkovich, the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, the Adventures of Baron Munchausen, Monty Python's Meaning of Life, and the NeverEnding Story. All the Terry Gilliam movies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, part, but, Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus is a good one. That's a real good choice. Yeah. And even though uh, the way that, you know, the same person being different timelines was handled was due to, uh, you know, Heath Ledger's untimely death. It also shows how you can tell a story with the same character with different actors and how they could have been handled differently. And again, that's a totally diff- different. It's totally a different thing that we don't need to talk Ooh, you about. You know right what? Now. What about I'm not there? The uh, the Todd Haynes. Uh, oh Bob Dylan yeah, biopic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's throw that, that in would too. Be a good one. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, there there was another one that I was thinking. Uh, oh yeah, just all, all of the Gilliam. Uh, throw Brazil in there too. That'll Doctor work. Doctor Strange Love, Brazil. Yeah. Yep. Just any, any movie that has people playing multiple roles. What are we gonna do for next week? Uh, next week. Uh, oh yeah, Nathan. Oh man. Oh, fuck. You haven't told us what we're doing next week. Okay, I'm. I'm, oh, I'm up again. oh man. What's our next movie? So we have some uh, coming attractions coming up, and next up, we're gonna be talking about oh, Blood Rage. Fuck, I forgot about this. I have not forgot about yes, this. Yes, that Tom Hanks classic, Blood Rage. <laughs> I thought you were going to announce our next Tom Hanks movie. I totally <laughs> forgot we're doing Blood Rage next week. We are taking a break from our Thanksgiving series to focus Never. on. I, I mean, we can keep watching Thanksgiving movies. Uh, we need we need some time to digest our our Thanksgiving meal, especially after Cloud Atlas. So it's been a daily vitamin, man. We, daily. <laughs> I'm uh, up to like 21 Hanks films for the month. We we are, however, gonna keep with the uh, thematic elements of Cloud Atlas of a single character playing or a single actor playing multiple roles, and we are uh. going to <laughs> be discussing the uh, Thanksgiving horror classic Blood Rage, directed by John Grismer, starring Mark Soper. I honestly don't remember much about this movie. And I'm yeah. I'm glad that you don't remember much so that you can go back into this. Uh, we have covered Blood Rage before. It's been a few years, and we did not cover it with Dan. So I'm looking forward to uh, covering it with Dan. This will be a first-time watch for me. Oh, is this the one that has the... Oh, I'm no, so wait, excited. The one that has the puzzle beginning? Pieces. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, man. okay. Sorry, I was getting... Okay. I have seen. <laughs> oh my god! All right, yeah, so this, no, this is the drive-in. It begins in the drive-in. Okay, okay, yeah, I, I know where I'm at. Now. All right, Dan. So and it's in Florida, right? Yes, it is. It takes place in Florida okay, okay. on Thanksgiving, and um, even right, though it all, is, it's all coming back to me. It's very, very, very easy to um to kind of skip over the fact that it takes place on Thanksgiving. It also is a pretty important piece. I mean, not really. It's super easy to come, uh, forget that it takes place during Thanksgiving at all. But it also kind of Aside matters. Aside from the and... one joke they repeat over and over. <laughs> I love this movie. They're, they're very proud of their, I, of their cranberry sauce. Joke. I do not want to oversell this movie because it's not good. However, it might be a masterpiece. 
Well, you don't have to oversell it because I've already purchased it. It's already been sitting on my shelf for like a year. Oh so my god! So, I found a copy of the U. I found a used copy of the Arrow Blu-ray, so I'm. I, I had to pick it up. You absolutely knowing that I would pick it up. Watch it. So, uh, Dan, I am going to give you a little bit of homework, and Eric, if you've well, not done this before, I'm also giving you some homework. You are going to watch the Grismer trilogy. You are going to watch John Grismer's entire filmography by next week. It's easy. It's easy. Absolutely not going to do because there's only three (laughs) movies. I do recommend watching them in chronological order. Like watch The Bride and then Scalpel and then Blood Rage. This trilogy, it's not like an actual trilogy. They're unrelated, but it is to me one of the most fascinating trio of films because of how i think amazing they are but also how singular they are and also how that's it like it was those three and then that's it they are a cloud atlas of of cinema uh because blood rage keeps showing back up every single year (laughs) blood rage is also going to be screening at central cinema uh and i forget the exact dates i posted it on the facebook page uh but yeah uh, Blood Rage is going to be screening at Central Cinema. If you are near the Knoxville area, absolutely see it in a crowd of people. Wear your masks, but also Central Cinema has been very good about COVID precautions. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's going to be our next episode. Is is revisiting the John Grismer classic Blood Rage, and I could not be more excited. And then we are going to be wrapping up our Thanksgiving series with my pick. That my my Which gut is. my gut keeps going back to Joe versus the volcano. It yeah, when yes. when we came up with Thanksgiving, it was the first one that I thought of. Yeah. It yes. is so good, and also <sighs> just weird. And the opening yes. stuff of it is. I'm, o- yeah. I'm only saying damn it because I watched an hour of it last night and took no notes. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's now, okay. I've been. That hour while taking notes. Exactly. The, the first hour is some of the best stuff. I though. That was going to be it. I'm so excited. Yeah, they, yeah. There were a few others in the running. Dragnet was my second pick, um, but it was one that like I had to be reminded of during our discussion of the burbs and like, oh, oh right, Dragnet. Ooh, it's so good. It's so good. I love it so much. That, that rap song. I, I, I think though uh uh joe versus the volcano is saying more interesting things than i I think it's saying more interesting things i think that it will pair incredibly well with um with cloud atlas uh i think that it will in a way sort of kind of i'm 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 seeing it i'm seeing it yeah (laughs) uh i it's uh, yeah oh man there's so much that i love about joe versus the volcano um i've never seen it Ooh, that's another reason that i wanted to pick it because i'm looking yeah. forward to your thoughts on it and i think you're gonna love it i don't think that you're gonna oh, love I'm i don't think that you're gonna love all of it i think there's gonna be a hefty chunk of the movie that you will think is either boring or dumb and that's interesting totally fine i can't prove you wrong i don't know i'm just there's <laughs> um <laughs> yeah yeah Oh, oh, hey, look, this movie looks like it also has some uh, some cultural appropriation in it. That's oh, cool. yeah. Joe versus the Volcano absolutely has some problematic 80s. Like, oh, come on, guys. That's, ah, oh, come on. 
There's there's some issues. Is that it. is that the connection, the thematic connection <laughs> to Cloud Atlas? It's like it, in Cloud it, Atlas, you get Hugh Grant and Tribal makeup, and this one you get Abe Vigoda. Yep. <laughs> uh, but you do get Abe Vigoda in Tribal makeup. Um, oh man, Aussie you, Davis is in this movie. You also. Oh, he's yeah. awesome. Okay, I'm, I'm so excited. There's also, oh, which is also kind of problematic. He's got a definite trope in that as well. There's th- this movie is all kinds of problems. So many problems. It also will pair just, well yeah, okay. with Cloud Atlas because uh, it has a certain actress playing multiple roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm very excited about this. <laughs> it also involves Tom Hanks going on a journey of self discovery. Much like his multiple characters in Cloud Atlas, and being uh-huh. on an island, and being like, on an be, island, I was gonna say being on an island, and going up to the top of a pointy thing on the island. Yep, <laughs> and yes, that's how I just referred to both mountains and has, volcanoes, pointy things on a mountain on an uh, island. <laughs> some themes of uh, suicide, apparently. Yep, uh, it's it's got some existentialism. Um, yes. It's it's got Tom Hanks at one point. Oh my god, his comedic timing is so good in this movie. But we'll get there. We're not talking yeah. about it yet. We should end I mean, this. We are though. This we is Eric. <laughs> shut it, Dan. Where do you want people to find you? <laughs> uh, you can reach me at uh, my website hbofrontrow.com and on Twitter at hbofrontrow. Eric, we've gotten punch huh? work. Where do you want people to find you in this um, timeline or the at- next? Um, well, you could. There are three different versions of me that can be found online. Uh, the first is on Twitter, and that is uh, at the Chimerican, just spelled T H E C H I M E R I C A N. My second uh, iteration of my is on Instagram at Chimerican Reviews, and the third version of me is on Letterbox at Eric J A Y. Uh, and you can find me and all of my um, astrological birthmarks on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Me slash the podcast. Sorry. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd at Video Monster Pod. You can also follow me personally on Letterboxd at The Gargoyle. That's G A R G Y L E because it's a gargoyle wearing an Argyle sweater. And if somehow you made it through this entire episode and enjoyed it and want to keep coming back for more of our discussions, just be sure to like, uh, subscribe, and leave some of those positive reviews wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a part of, uh, of some of our live episodes, whether it be listening in to some of the very unedited banter um, or, you know, dropping in some comments in, in the text chat. Be sure to uh, join our Discord server. We do live episodes every Tuesday night at 9-ish, depending on if we get the kids in bed in time. And I feel like there was another thing that I was going to say. I can't remember what it was. So everyone out there, if I'm actually able to get this episode posted before we record Blood Rage, be sure to go watch all of John Grismer's films especially blood rage and be back next week when we dive in to this holiday classic that i so cannot wait to talk about and it just it 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 is already warming my heart to think about it could also just be indigestion all right that's been it for this episode of video monsters almost forgot the name of the podcast that's been it for this episode of video monsters i'm nathan and i'm dan 
And remember, thank you, Robert. Soylent Green is people. You're lusting after the podcast. <laughs>